2: Well, it's a big week for those of us that like to look up towards the sky, particularly at night, and ask the question why or the question what. Well, today we are asking the question who. Who knows the most about space and astronomy on the radio and who has the best voice anywhere on the radio? The answer to both of those who questions is Steve Cates, a.k.a. Dr. Sky, one of my favorite people to talk to, someone that I'm proud to call a friend, a veteran radio and TV broadcaster and an edutainer with a great deal of expertise in astronomy and space. He's going to help us break down some of the tremendous space news that we have encountered this week. Steve, it is great to talk with you again. Thanks so much for joining me.
3: Well, good morning, Frank. Always is a privilege and honor to be here on the other
2: side of midnight. Thank the, you. The pleasure is all mine. Let's begin with uh, the big story of disappointment, as I would characterize it this week. Last week, we were all excited that it looked like there was going to be at the beginning of of the Artemis one rocket launch, the SLS. Then okay, they didn't get to do it last week because of some rocket fuel problems. And then they said, all right, we're not gonna do it uh, during the week, we're gonna do it on Saturday. Everybody was tuned in to Saturday to see what happened. And then Saturday it gets scrapped. Explain to us what happened here. Why did Artemis and the SLS get scrapped and what happens next?
3: Well it's interesting, Frank. Again thanks for having me. The problem here In a nutshell, is the lightest element in the universe on the periodic table. Hydrogen is really the source of where they're having this issue. It's not the hydrogen per se. It's a leak of hydrogen. And this is a very complicated system uh, that we're talking about with this 322-foot rocket. And by the way, just for visuals, if people are wondering, gee, we've seen rockets like the Saturn V of days gone by. It was painted white. They're actually trying to save some of the fuel efficiency as the early space shuttle, the main, uh, the main, you know, the main tank, the external tank, the first versions of that and first iterations were orange, so they don't have all the paint on this. But this is you've got to remember this, folks. This is an experimental rocket, and a lot of people think they just roll this thing out there and boom, you're supposed to go up and just you know light the candle and it's supposed to take off. Well, that's not as that is obviously not what's happening here. They have some issues with the fueling of this as far as the hydrogen. There's a hydrogen leak on board this particular craft. Now, what it comes down to, without going into super technicals, is that there's this eight-inch particular area, like an eight-inch hose. And to put it in very simple terms, they've got some sort of a leak system where they might have overpressurized a line. They might have pushed maybe 60 pounds per square inch to this little hose or this main hose. And you're probably only supposed to put 20. So the big problem is, you're now going to have to take all the fuel if it's not already out of there. Think about this. It's primarily fuel is liquid oxygen and liquid hydrogen. So we have a thing of about five, you know, over five million gallons of liquid hydrogen and almost what? A little over a million gallons of liquid oxygen. So the problematic thing here is they're going to have to go back. And what they might have to do is actually return the big, you know, Artemis 1 rocket back to one of the largest buildings in the world, that vehicle assembly building. And remember, you have to put it on the transporter, and that takes, what, days, a couple of days? It goes four miles. And I might have said this before in our last episode, that that tractor, you know, the big crawler that the rocket is on probably gets some of the worst gas mileage in the entire world, or diesel mileage. It gets, how about this, 41 feet to the gallon. How about that? So this particular rocket has some has some issues, And also, let's go back to the main propulsion system on this. There are four RS-25 rockets, rocket motors or engines, I should say, on the bottom, and two very modified, you know, the advanced version of the solid rocket boosters. The issue has been with one of those RS-25 engines, but let's not knock NASA on this one. The RS-25 engines have had 405 flights, and now on these particular four engines, they actually have a track record. So to make this quick, one of the engines is number 2056, it's had four flights. It was also used on a shuttle that did some servicing of the Hubble, uh, on a Hubble mission for the Hubble Space Telescope to service it. Engine 2045, it's had 12 flights. It also was part of John Glenn's second return to space a long time ago, all space shuttle stuff. 2058 has had six flights, mostly shuttles, and 2060 has had three flights and it was on the last shuttle mission. So the motors on there, there was an actual problem with, well, I think it was engine number three, not the numbers I gave. They called them different, you know, in the rotation. But they had an issue there where something called cryogenic cooling. So in other words, you have to make that engine cool enough so that when you fire it in the simplest way, that you don't shock the motor when you're going off and, and doing this big launch. And another quick issue here is the Saturn V, you know, the Apollo astronauts noticed something, particularly on Apollo 12. When they launched the big Saturn V moon rocket with those very efficient F-1 engines, the astronauts on board, Pete Conrad said this, and they were struck by lightning, by the way, as they were going up uh, in, in their ascent. They had a problem in a lot of these shuttles, i mean, a lot of these spacecraft, like the big Saturn rockets, had something called pogoing effect. And what's that? You had variable amounts of thrust coming off those engines. So if you were sitting in those, you know, couches going to up to the moon to orbit— you would feel this vibration like you were riding a pogo. So they have to get all this done. And the launch windows for this, Frank, are going to be, well, the next series of launch windows could be September 19th through October the 4th, October 17th through the 31st, and another one, November the 12th through the 27th. But so, I don't Steve, Steve
2: explain so. that to us for a second. Why do would we have to wait till September 19th or October? Is that a weather-related situation? Why couldn't we say just try it tomorrow or Saturday? Why do we have to wait for those other launch windows? What changes in those windows that you referenced?
3: One of the best questions I've ever gotten, and I'm being serious, it is due to celestial mechanics. It has a lot to do with the position of the moon so you can efficiently make this rocket move towards goal and obviously you don't want to use excessive amounts of fuel this mission was supposed to be 40 plus days and remember there's no humans on board this it's kind of a replicant of apollo 8 back in 1968 when the saturn 5 by the way was pushed with you know they they did this very quickly you know the saturn 5 was tested numerous times before but they made a quick decision and nasa made this decision to send three you know three humans to orbit the moon. But the answer is simply, Frank, is that there's dynamics, celestial mechanics. You have to have the right, you know, distances, the right motions, the right efficiency of using fuel, because this particular rocket, if it had gone off on Saturday, was to go on a 37-day mission and orbit low and high, about 30,000 miles up and around above the moon, and as low as maybe three or 4,000 miles toward the you know, closest part of the lunar orbit and then return back to Earth and land, or I should say soft land, in the ocean, off the area of San Diego in the Pacific Ocean. So I don't think this is going to happen anytime soon, but then Elon Musk gets involved in this. And then the big question I'm sure that we'll get tonight or this morning from a lot of, and hopefully we will from callers, is with how come Elon has much greater success in launching rockets than NASA has had? And that's another question that really nobody can really answer right now. You know, and not to attack NASA. There's all – maybe it's a big bureaucracy. I don't know. I I don't work for them. Maybe it's not. Maybe in all fairness to to NASA, maybe they do have some issues with these engines. They're still good engines. But why does Elon Musk simply be able to launch rockets and do this? And he actually suggested – you know, not to go too deep into this – he actually suggested that they should change the type of fuel that they're using or partial fuel on this instead of using hydrogen because he says that since it's the lightest element in the universe and it floats away, very difficult to control under certain conditions, he believes that they should be using something in the methane area with engines. Boy, does he have a lot of experience, because what has he done, Frank? He's developed five main engines. The most popular one is the Merlin engine, which is liquid oxygen and something called an iteration of kerosene called RP-1. He's developed a motor or engine called a Kestrel, the Draco, the Super Draco, and then this new Raptor engine. So I think he's got a lot he's got a lot to say on it. And he may be right. So
2: who knows? By the way, if people do have questions, people are already starting to queue up. We will get to them as many as we can throughout the hour. one 800 That's one 800 here with uh, Steve Cates, a.k.a. Dr. Sky. So are you optimistic at this point, given what you said about the next launch windows? Do you think this is something that's going to be happening within the launch windows that you just described?
3: I think to be an optimist here, yes, I'd like to see it happen during these launch windows. But as Bill Nelson, you know, the head of NASA said, you know, we don't light the candle until it's ready to go. And he does have a good point, though, here. And separating all politics and everything aside on this, he's right when not not only was he an astronaut, too, going up on one of the shuttle missions, but they have rolled the uh, shuttles or a shuttle into the vehicle assembly building at least 20 times to get it right. So I'm hoping that they can get this right, but I don't really think they're in a rush right now, and I think that's important for people to know, because Artemis is a very expensive project. And remember, in all kudos to NASA, their budget, Frank, is very tiny compared to some of the other things we see in the federal government, whether we like them or not. They're upwards of not much more than $20 billion a Mm -hmm. year in funding. So I'm hoping, just like a lot of space fans, that we do get this rocket to go is it the best rocket that we could build? I don't know, but it does have the most power, and you got to give them credit for this. That will generate 8.8 million pounds of thrust, eclipsing the Saturn V, which had, in all, you know, people can just check this out, seven and a half million pounds of thrust from these beautiful five F1 engines. That actually Jeff Bezos actually decided to dig up some of those rocket motors were you know under the ocean in the Atlantic Ocean, and he wanted to figure out how to build better rocket motors because to figure this out, a lot of the blueprints and stuff like that and the tooling is all gone from that great error of Apollo.
2: All right, 800-848-9222. We're going to get to as many calls as we can. Let me begin with John in Freehold. Hello, John.
4: Hey, guys. How are you? Good morning, Um, John. Good uh, good morning. Good night. Good morning. Uh, So, my question was, um, since the universe is expanding,
5: mm-hmm.
4: and th- it, it would be expanding outwards, yes. so let's say there's like a, a distant like planet um, that we want to go to. If we would the trip there be the same as the trip backwards? Because once we, is there some kind of uh, would the uh, whatever's propelling um, the universe yes. outwards? Uh, would it create friction? Like say you go to a planet, it takes like a thousand years. Would it take longer to go back the other way? Would you be hitting some kind of force to slow you down?
3: Very good question. And I really don't know. I mean, I'll give you the best science answer I can, and always honest here, you know, to a fault. The reality on this, John, is that if you were to go, let's say to the nearest star, however long it took you to get there, whether it was chemical propulsion or if you could go the speed of light, it would take you the same amount of time to go to and fro but the problematic thing is on Earth, let's just use a simple example. If we went to Alpha Centauri today and went by light speed, four and a half, let's say, light years away, because of the whole thing that Einstein talked about, about time slowing down in space, what we would find out is if we came back, maybe the people that we knew that were, say, you know, 30, 40 years old, by the time we came back to the Earth, they may not even be around because of the differences when you travel at the speed of light. But simply speaking, if you use chemical rockets, they would obviously be the same time. There, there's nothing unless you got to the speed of light.
2: Thank you, John. 800 848 Neil is on Staten Island. Hello, Neil.
6: Hey, Doc. Uh, Good a couple morning. of questions. Number one, yes, uh, I, I know I had a friend that worked on the Apollo mission. Uh, he worked for oh. Roman at the time. Yeah. And he told me that when they, when they built the module, uh, no matter what was done to it, there was an inspector there and another guy watching, another guy watching, uh, very, very careful to make sure everything was done properly. It seems that the autonomous uh, rocket mm. its full of floors, and I, I don't know if it's ready to go. I think it's money wasted after money. Uh, and and the, the second thing, yes. what, what about an electric rocket? I mean, the, our government is killing us with fossil fuel. Well, is there any development in, in making some sort of electric rockets to actually- Absolutely.
3: Yes, Neil, you bring up some very good points. There actually is. Let's talk about the second part of your question first. There is development. On something called xenon technology so it's like that without going into great detail it's like that if you were to look at the back end of that like an afterburner on a jet it has this blue glow to it and what it's doing it's not using chemical type propellants it's using some sort of an electric you know it's a change of electrons and it's a pushing of force it has a force field in there and just to keep it simple that's something but as far as going back to NASA here, this is interesting. I always wondered about this. You know, how come slide rule guys, and there were pretty much guys, and there were a few women, God bless them, who actually worked on some of the orbit solutions back in the day, and they didn't get a lot of credit. But why, how come, Neil? I mean, we just have to wonder how could the guys who were using slide rules and some of the women there be able to get these rockets to work? Remember, no Saturn V rocket exploded on the launch pad. Obviously, we've had issues before. But I think we got to be a little careful here. and we got to give these, these guys and gals a little bit of credit here. I think they're going to get this right because, remember, as I said before, and I said that to Frank, Neil, this is still an experimental rocket, and it's NASA's way of getting us back to the moon and to Mars. So maybe what they should have is maybe a little less PR on this thing right now until they really get it right. Then open the doors and try it again. But I hope they've solved those hydrogen. Thank
2: you, Neil. Eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two. Nick is in Farmingdale. Hello, Nick.
7: Hi there, Frank and Doctor Sky. Good um, morning. All in my life, I've been told two things about stars. Um, one is stars are just balls of fire like our sun, and obviously I know that's true. And number two is stars are all different galaxies, and they're light being reflected off the galaxies. So I want to know: are both of them true? Is one of them true? And why? Because I just want to clear this up. I've always been told these two different things. I don't know which one is true, so
3: go ahead. Well, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Nick. And give me the second part of it again. I mean, they're all fusion reactors in the sky, obviously. And they're all different ages, and they do different things. But let me get the second part of that. I didn't quite get it.
7: When I was a lot younger, maybe, I don't know, 10 years ago, I was told that some stars are like different galaxies and things like that. Is that true?
3: Well, no, stars themselves are not galaxies. They're either part of galaxies. Like here in the Milky Way, let's keep it very simple. We probably Mm -hmm. have, and this is a guess. Nobody knows for sure. There may be 100 billion stars in the Milky Way. That's a whole galaxy because all these stars come and rotate, like we have planets that go around the sun. So stars are not galaxies, but they're individual stars. But each star is a fusion reactor at a different age of its life. As the sun burns hydrogen, and excuse me, it converts hydrogen into helium. As they get older, they lose the ability to convert hydrogen to helium and they start using heavier metals. And then what happens later, may, like people, we get a little bit uh, wider at the equator. They right. sometimes have these little celestial earthquakes or little uh, heart attacks. And, I, you know, not to keep it uh, overly difficult here or overly complicated, they have arrhythmias which then the whole star can collapse. But, no, individual stars are not galaxies. So there you go.
2: Thank you, Nick. 800-848-9222. We're going to continue with your questions in just a moment. And... As we talk about human attempts at space travel and space exploration, we are actually commemorating a pretty big anniversary this week and this month. We'll tell you what it is. We have uh, a guy that is very knowledgeable, a guy that has uh, one of the best voices in all of radio, and the knowledge to boot, 800-848-9222. Steve Cates, a.k.a. Dr. Sky, is my guest for the hour. We'll continue with your calls straight ahead.
1: The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Marano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank
5: Marano.
7: It's just another night
5: and I'm staring at the moon I saw a shooting star and thought of you I sang a lullaby by the water side, I knew If you were here, I'd sing to you You're on the other side As the skyline splits in two
2: Miles away from seeing you This is Ed Sheeran singing all of the stars. We're talking about the stars with Steve Cates, a.k.a. Dr. Sky. Uh, You could check out some of his work in the Dr. Sky blog at KTAR.com. We're very lucky to have him on our show as a regular contributor, and uh, hopefully we'll be hearing a lot more from him in the near future. He is a veteran radio and TV broadcaster and an edutainer who knows a thing or two about astronomy And space, Steve, we've been talking all about Artemis and these missions to the moon. This will be the first time, if we're successful in going back to the moon, that we've been back there in 50 years. Remind us, why does this matter? What can we actually learn about the Earth, for instance, by going to the moon?
3: Well, that's interesting. Let's go to the International Space Station. You know, a lot of controversy there with Russia and the politics aside. But there's been a lot of interesting things happening. And using the ISS as the best example here... And I'm not a paid participant, you know, by as part of any kind of a you know, lobbying group, but just from my own research and talking to different people in the journalism world, there's been so many experiments that we've been doing to help hopefully, hopefully lower the cost of different things in the medical world. You know, they're talking about new drugs and development of different procedures in the medical world, and we're learning so much about how the human body can even endure out in space and even on the Earth. But with this particular rocket, Artemis, this is fascinating stuff. I mean, to me, I'm excited. I hope you are, so are the listeners. But again, remember their budget that they have at NASA. They're really working with a tiny little bit of money. I mean, think of the wealth that Bezos and and you know Elon Musk have that they've created over the time. Look at the total amount of money that they have as the richest people in the world. NASA's budget would probably be what an outing for one of those guys, maybe buying, <laughs> you know, like like what he's trying to do with Twitter, right? This is with uh, with Musk. So the point is, what they're trying to do, and again, I'm 100% in support of this. Obviously, we have a lot of problems here on the planet Earth. Well, I guess the question is always this. Why can't we all just get along? And wouldn't it be great, Frank, if the golden rule ran our lives every day? But I guess that's not going to happen. But the great astrophysicist and cosmologist himself, Stephen Hawking, made that prediction. He said we need to leave this planet to move out because we need more open spaces. And and not to go into military history, think about what the Germans did in World War II. Think about what China's trying to do to expand. I think the word was called Liebenstrom, in which they were saying open spaces. So what Stephen Hawking has been telling us since he's passed away, we keep hearing that in his computerized voice from his ALS that he suffered from and lived a long life, and a very productive one, is that we need to move out into space. And the average person on the street, believe me, I talk to everybody like myself it seems sometimes hard to even fathom this stuff. But again, we're going to go to the moon. Mm. We're going to do it. And and I hope it's not a military type of thing because look what China's trying to do. They're oh, trying yeah. to build a moon base and maybe even, <clears throat> I hate to say it, some sort of a military platform, up not only in orbit around the Earth, but also maybe a space base uh, on the moon. That could someday be, what, uh, having nuclear missiles pointed back at the Earth? I mean, come on. That's a little extreme.
2: Maybe I'm more ignorant than I realized that I was. But until this week when I started to read some of the articles about Artemis and the moon, I had no idea that the moon was widely believed by experts – to have formed after a collision between Earth and another rocky body, and yes. that the Moon itself is a record of that history, it, it, tell us about that if you can. W- what do we know about the moon 's formation and its possible collision or the the result of it, of the collision with the earth
3: well, great question. I mean, in grammar school, I was young, of course, at one time too, like we all. And when we were told in school, you, at least way back, <laughs> I love it. Well, way back when, that's a long time ago in a far-off galaxy, they were, we were told pretty much. I went to Catholic schools most of my life. But here's the point. They were telling us even back then, well, the moon was actually birthed out of the Pacific Ocean. And I <laughs> said to myself, well, I believed it because what's really there? It's a big ocean. But the real scientific side of this right now is the moon was probably a captured body in which it might have collided or probably did collide with another body. And remember, when the solar system was young, we're going back to 4.5 billion years ago, not million, billion. And remember, one, there's a thousand million in a billion, so that's a long time ago, that these particular objects were like maybe just big balls of, you know, uncondensed plasma. And through time, they rotated and formed into bodies. So the moon, when it actually was, you know, earlier in its, its gestation was actually very, very, very close to the Earth. And some say it was even as close as 30,000 miles away when it was actually forming as this big blob, and then it slowly receded away. But the moon is fascinating because I was just doing an interview the other day with a guy named Don Isles, and who's Don? And I had the honor to talk with him. He was the gentleman with a team that worked at MIT at fixing and, and working on the landing solution for the Apollos. How complicated is that? but what he said to me and it's very interesting he said the moon is very unique its gravity field is not constant there's something on the moon called mascons and michael collins if he was still with us he could have explained it better because he was the lone astronaut on apollo 11 going around the moon they locked on their supposed you know course around the moon and they were getting this oscillation going up and down kind of like a miniature porpoising as they were going and they found out that the moon has different densities so it's difficult to figure how to fly around <laughs> the moon. So who knows? It probably came from, to answer your question in finality, it probably came from a captured body that was hit, and then were two big blobs, let's say, to keep it simple. Like they were lava, they spun together, and now we find the moon is here. And uh, it's an interesting place.
2: 800-848-9222. Let me say hello to Kevin in New Jersey. Hello, Kevin.
6: Hey, good morning, gentlemen. Good morning. Good morning. By far your best guest ever. Agreed. Always Always, always look forward to hearing from you. So somebody may have asked this this in the past, just curious, is there any land-based telescopes that can look on the moon today and see any man-made objects from
3: Apollo left there? Wow, Kevin, you bring up another fascinating question. The answer to that question would be we don't have any telescope, even this large, extremely large telescope that's being built in Chile, that will have this, like, 130-foot mirror. You would need something far larger than that, And one of the problems is, since we're looking at it, like, figure figure this way. You and I are standing and talking, and I'm looking at you through a large, you know, fish tank or an aquarium. And that's a little dramatic. But the air is the problematic thing where we're trying to filter out the atmosphere. So we would need a telescope of untold proportions to be able to see anything. And I've always wondered about this, gentlemen. How come or maybe could they ever point the Hubble Space Telescope at the lunar surface and I don't know why they've never, ever done that. So maybe we ought to do a little petition and say, hey, how about that, or turn James Webb onto the moon. I'd love to see it. But we do have answers, and the answers of those you know, particular spacecraft on the moon for people that don't believe we went there. The cross, no, it's actually the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter, which is actually partially headquartered here in Arizona. We have all the images of pictures showing the descent module, the footprints, and the rover tracks. So, wow. Pretty cool stuff.
2: Thank you, Kevin. Eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two. Ben is on Roosevelt Island. Hello, Ben. Hey,
8: greetings. Uh, so that yes. last caller Al almost like asked the same question just about I was going to ask. However, Whoa. what I'm curious about is yeah, I mean, for real, because I've been when people doubt that they went to the moon. Well, there has to be evidence that's there, and the flag sure. is there, and the rovers there, and the footprints are there. But we don't have anything so far that has said, well. We can see that it's still there. So, but when they go up again, will they be able to then from that position take some kind of image or show the images, yes. you know, when oh, they're yeah. up there?
3: Absolutely. And, you know, the great conspiracy thing here is very interesting, Ben. You bring up some good subject matter here. You know, we have this LRO going around, Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter. And it's got these images of all the Apollo sites, and it's actually found other spacecraft. So I was wondering, why the heck doesn't somebody like Bezos or, uh, you know, Musk send up a robotic spacecraft, land right next to the Apollo 11 site, and show us what's there? That would be the coolest thing in the world. But remember, those particular objects are visible. If you look up Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter, take a look at those images. They're really cool. But this is another interesting story that we actually did land on the moon. Apollo 12, when it descended to the surface of the moon, it landed very close to the Surveyor spacecraft. (laughs) And Al Bean and and, uh, Pete Conrad, they actually had a chance to walk right down to it and pull parts off the thing. So apparently we Uh made it there to the moon with a soft lander. Why couldn't we make it there with another soft lander with two people in it? And we did. Right. And
9: then – and one one of that last, before we get, before I leave. Um, sure. So
8: also when they, they the, you know, the theory about, you know, the, the person that was taking the photographs mm-hmm. um, of, I guess it was Neil Armstrong, that was, you know, one small step for a man, one giant mm-hmm. leap for mankind. Yes. How did he get to the position that he was in to take the photographs that caused people to then, you know, question, well, who was on the moon first? Was it the guy that took the step? what. How did
10: that
3: happen? I don't, I don't get it. Well, the interesting part about this is there's very few photographs of Armstrong on the surface of the moon. Most of the photographs were taken of Aldrin as Armstrong took them back. But the interesting thing there is the television cameras that we had on the surface of the moon, the best pictures ever were those from Apollo 16 and 17. But I'm hoping, like everybody, Ben, that why don't we just yeah. send up a little robotic spacecraft, land there, show us what the heck is there, and I bet agreed. you, Ben, there'd be a lot of people who still would believe that that's a fake, don't you think? <laughs> right. I mean, they're doing it on Mars. They can do it on the moon. Hey, agreed. agreed. Well, Thank let's all so go much. there, Frank. Uh, hey,
2: back I'm back. in. Count me in. Thank you, Ben. 800-848-9222. That's one eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two. I did want to ask you a little bit about a pretty remarkable occasion that happened 45 years ago this week, and that has to do with the launch of Voyager 1. Now, we're talking more more than two generations, almost a half century ago. Remind folks what Voyager 1 was and why that was so significant in terms of a space probe and what we learned from Voyager 1.
3: Well, it's interesting, Frank, when I was a New Yorker, of course, back in 1977, when we had the blackout in the summer. I remember soon after in September, I got word, like everybody on the planet, that we launched these spacecraft toward the outer solar system. And we had Voyager 1 and Voyager 2. And Voyager 1 actually was set on a course to go to a favorable alignment for Jupiter and Saturn, while Voyager 2 explored Uranus, I say it the politically correct way, and (laughs) Neptune, And what's interesting is we're celebrating the 45 years ago. It seemed like yesterday to me, and this is interesting, Voyager 1, get a look at this, 14.6 billion miles, not light years, billion miles away, takes over 14 hours. If I wanted to just call you up, let's say, on the phone and say, Hi, Frank, how are you today? That's pretty instantaneous. We know that, everybody's phone. But in order to send a command to the Voyager 1, which, by the way, had some issues in the last couple of months, Something strange was interfering with its you know, communications or something on board wasn't working right. They don't know why, but it's fixed. That takes 14 hours or more just to say turn left and point the camera, let's say, and I'm making that part up. I don't know what they were doing with it, but just to send a signal takes that long. It's traveling 38,000 miles an hour going out into the deep, dark recesses of the universe, and that's incredible. And on board, this is amazing. I had one opportunity in college to go up to Cornell University and actually get to sit there and chat with Carl Sagan. Now, that was a highlight. But I said then I asked him. I was just this, you know, goofy little kid then sitting there saying, hey, Dr. Sagan, can you tell me about the record that's on board the spacecraft and what it is? There's like 55 languages that are on this recording, like a large. Remember the old big laser disc player mm-hmm. things? Sure. I love those. <laughs> oh, I, I never got one, but I always wanted
2: <laughs> one. They were always a little outside my price range. And then once DVD oh. came out, they said, oh, DVD is kind of the same thing, only less expensive.
3: Well, Frank, I'm a lucky man. I found a laser player. It took me months, and it actually has in it a small little, the smaller DVD version. Oh, I
2: love that.
3: I love And I that. love, and I'm not to do a, you know, a sales campaign on, on laserdisc, but you know what? You can find them. And the coolest part about it is I have one looking at my desk right here. I have 2010 and 2001, but you open up the thing, and it's like this whole thing, like when you're a kid, you did this poster board thing. You got the whole storyboard of the whole movie. But on board, there's this particular image on the record that has the shape of humans, male and female, it has geometrically where the spacecraft came from. And, of course, one of the Star Trek uh, episodes are actually movies.
2: Right, Star Trek, and, the motion picture.
3: Right. We find out at the end that this big source in space that devoured everything and became almost like a brain of its own artificial intelligence was known as what? V'ger very interesting.
2: Yeah, no, that was interesting. There's a lot, you know, that that movie gets panned a lot, but uh, that was kind of an interesting twist that they had on that. Alright, hundred eight four We're going to continue with Dr. Sky in a moment. We have, uh, we're have, we going to try and squeeze in as many of your questions as as we can. I have a number of questions about what's happening in space as well, and on the sky, we'll find out what's worth tuning into. If you have a telescope, a pair of binoculars, or just the naked eye, we'll see where it's sh- what's worth checking out. This is The Other Side of Midnight. This is Frank Morano, and we'll continue straight ahead. The other
1: side of midnight. 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 It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano.
2: Now, this is The Other Side of Midnight. My guest for the hour is the one and only Steve Cates, a.k.a. Dr. Sky. Um, Steve, I, I, you know, we were going over topics back and forth that we might want to discuss uh, throughout the course of the hour. And you, there was one subject that uh, must have missed my radar screen, but it really did pique my interest and my curiosity. You mentioned that there's a possibility to hear the remnants of the Big Bang on your radio, what is this?
3: Well, Frank, this is interesting. We look at in cosmology, at least astronomers and cosmologists say that the universe expanded, now we'll take away the word explosion, some 13.77 billion years ago. And then something magical happened about 380,000 years, not millions of years, after that. What happened is the universe heated up. And it's like you took some sugar and threw it into a you know a skillet and you fried it up. It sticks to the, to the pan, let's say. Well, this particular event was the signature that's left over from this big, big sizzle, you want to call it. It's called the cosmic microwave background radiation. Sounds complicated. It was actually discovered like in 1964 by Arno Penzias and, and Wilson down at the Bell Laboratories in Holmdel, New Jersey. They were sitting out there trying to find out You know how certain stars or galaxies you know may make some noise and that was all radio telescope stuff and actually working on the Telstar communication satellite they noticed this hissing sound so today and not to leave your show right now but people when you have an opportunity let's say to listen to a radio station let's in between let's say particularly on FM some of that static that you're hearing you wonder where it comes from and a lot of scientists say and it's pretty simple explanation that that's the actual sizzle sound that's out there in the entire universe. What you're hearing is these hydrogen atoms that are fused, this thing called, just look it up, folks, cosmic microwave background radiation. So isn't that amazing? So some of the static you hear, on AM radio, of course, you'll hear a lot of stations bouncing back and forth all the time. But on FM, which is a little different way, the different modality of frequency, you're then going to be able to hear some of that sizzle in the background. Imagine that as a telltale sign that the universe still continues to send out this powerful energy, which is pervasive everywhere in the universe. That's
2: pretty neat. 800-848-9222. Joe is in Queens. Hello, Joe.
6: Yeah. Hi, Dr. Sky. Steve. Good morning. Uh, my question would be two things. One would be on the moon or Earth. What is the difference between the magnetic field and the gravitational field? And also on the lost in space, did anything ring... Up with you on that Lost in Space series with uh, Will and his robot and that, you know.
3: Oh, I love that show. I'm sitting right here in my office. I have the full DVD set here, and I do watch it because well, of, the, a- of
2: the original or the or oh, the, the reboot.
3: Oh no, the original. The original. Is, oh, the original. So Billy mumi, we've had him on the program, and we've talked so many times. But this is interesting, Joe. If we, you know, I look at that show and I say. The thing also sitting in my desk, not to do like we're doing a you know, an artifact sale here, I'm looking at a model of the Jupiter-2. Now, that's one of the things that I think is so fascinating, Joe, is the technology of the Jupiter-2. So supposedly it took off uh, in, I believe it was 1997 in the fictional series, but it was powered as a nuclear type of a spacecraft. And the hard part that I really never could understand is they seem like that spacecraft is kind of small. So- they didn't have too much privacy on board there, especially when Dr. Smith was running around. But I thought the technology, Joe, to answer you in there, is pretty cool to see a spacecraft like that with such high technology. And who was the overpowering ruler of that spacecraft was, of course, the robot. That was an amazing robot. And uh, you know, going back to your point about the moon, there really isn't too much of a big difference between the magnetic field. The moon probably has very little, if any, of a magnetic field. It has a gravity field. But it's extremely small. So if you were on the moon, you've probably heard it a million times, Joe, you'd weigh one-sixth the weight hmm. that you weigh on the Earth and the astronauts in their suits. Imagine those suits were maybe two or 300 pounds. So on the moon, they had the ability to be one-sixth their weight and lucky for them, huh?
2: Thank you, Joe. 800-848-9222. Uh, doctor Sky, before we run out of time, yes. anything in the night sky that people might be able to catch on their own upcoming, either with binoculars, a telescope, or maybe even just a naked eye?
3: Well, Frank, this is the week, and I think this is the main point of this radio show, in my opinion, for this episode. This week, folks, the most magnificent, in my opinion, not only romantic moon, But also one of the most beautiful is the full harvest moon. Now, when you have clear, hopefully you'll have clear skies, Friday evening, if you look into the southeast sky, or just a little bit maybe more toward the east, this is the moon, full moon, that is, that's closest to the autumnal equinox, simpler language, the beginning of fall, which occurs like on the 22nd. This moon, so named as the harvest moon for a reason, when we were much more of an agricultural society in the past, the moon at this time has a very shallow angle to what we call the ecliptic or the zodiac. So it rises right at the time of sunset. In some years, it's in the sky at sunset, thus giving the farmers of old days, and maybe even today, more light, thus the name to harvest crops by. And it's a fascinating sight. Don't miss it. It's also the moon right now is at its perigee position for the month. So the moon is closest to a perigee. It's not a super moon. But when you see it, It'll be 229,000 miles away. Fascinating. Eight
2: hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two. 848 9222 Leo is on the Upper West Side. Hello, Leo. Good morning,
11: Frank and Steve.
2: Morning. Good morning, Leo.
11: I have a question. Uh, I want to put on the record that we already spoke about it on uh, Morano uh, show. 100 years from now, they're going to actually do it. I have an idea. When we colonize moon, what about do out of the moon actually jail? The, the people would have no place where to run away, so we, they would
5: not need guards. <laughs>
2: wait, wait, they, wait, uh, Leo, I just want to make sure I'm clear. Uh, you want to make Moon the moon into basically like a an intergalactic Australia, basically, a, a, a penal colony, a giant penal, penal colony.
3: colony?
2: Wow.
10: No, there would be no need for guards.
3: <laughs> That's interesting. Well, you know something, Leo.
4: Be run away.
3: Leo, you're not the first yeah. person to think about this, and I and I love you dearly. But let me say this: <laughs> so many, so many, <laughs> Frank, so many science fiction movies have used this concept. I believe in the movie Aliens, not Alien. There was discussion of a certain planet that the aliens, of course, hadn't the alien creatures hadn't you know populated yet. And they were using one of those craft as a penal colony transport system. So, Leo, that's interesting. But I don't know. I I don't think I'd want to be up on a penal colony or even try to be a guard up there because – I don't know. I think we'd kind of run out of uh, things to do. Maybe that's the reason for a prison.
2: Steve, since you mentioned science fiction and aliens, literally, I'm always a little hesitant to bring up the idea of extraterrestrials with you because you comment so much on serious science. And I don't want to take anything away from the serious scientific discussions that you're having by throwing alien questions at you. However... I I read this really interesting column by Christopher Mellon, who was a a diplomat. He was uh, not only a a leading staffer on the uh, on a Senate committee, but he was also the uh, deputy assistant secretary of defense for intelligence. The guy is a a reputable guy. And in his free time. Uh, He works to raise awareness regarding the UAP issue. He wrote such an interesting column for a website called thedebrief.org. And if people haven't seen it, I've linked to it Mm -hmm. on my Facebook page. They can read it, facebook.com slash MoranoFan, called The Paradox of Fermi's Paradox. And basically, Mm -hmm. he basically takes issue with what Enrico Fermi said in the 40s, which is if there are all these alien civilizations out there, how come none are visiting us? And basically Mellon takes the uh, the approach, well, there's a lot of evidence to show sightings of UAPs. Why has the scientific community up until now been so reluctant to acknowledge the credible evidence that we have been visited by UAPs? um, I, I don't know if you've read the article, but what's your take on that general premise?
3: No, I have not. But Enrico Fermi, just to elaborate a little more, with all the signals that are out there that we've sent and all the so-called civilizations by Earth, or excuse me, sun-like stars, how come we've never had any contact or any signal? Well, his theory was that there was this great filter that intelligent civilizations maybe wanted to block us or maybe have been here before. But this is interesting. I mean, the UFO subject I'm open to because I had a lot of experience with a woman who had one of the most incredible experiences, the Barney and Betty Hill situation. And I knew Betty Hill very well. In college days, I visited her many times. Quick story on that is, in September of 61, they claim an actual alien abduction. Big Hollywood movie was made about it. I was very open to her, you know, conversation of aliens from this star system called Zeta Reticuli. But, uh, Frank, this is my general consensus on this, and I may want to write a book on this, or maybe somebody's going to do it ahead of me. I believe that since we couldn't all get along on this planet – not to be Mr. Negative here in this early hour – but the problematic thing is we had maybe nuclear war, asteroid impact, or climate change, whatever, that human species went underground. But AI took over, and basically in the future, the AI and the human species biologically morphed together. Now, this is – we're talking hundreds, maybe a 1,000 years in the future. I know this sounds wacky to some. But the things that you're seeing today, like these different, you know, tic-tacs, my goodness, if you look at some of the evidence on there, these things are not made in China or Russia as far as anybody can imagine. So wouldn't it be possible if AI learned what Einstein was trying to say about trying trying to transform the space-time continuum? And maybe these objects that we're seeing are future generations of this melding together of the human species and these AI-type devices – They may be what's called sentient beings. Maybe what those Tic Tacs are are like a big kidney or a big liver or a big heart with intelligence that knows how to move through time and space. That's a crazy theory to some, but – I think there's a lot of uh, a lot of stuff on this that people would would be open about. Uh, no,
2: absolutely. You alluded to the uh, James Webb Telescope mm-hmm. earlier. We've certainly been seeing a lot of interesting images from this James Webb Telescope, including some images which are causing some scientists to scratch their heads. Based on what you've seen, is the James Webb Telescope living up to the expectations that people had in for it in terms of delivering new and interesting explore, exploration? And new and interesting images? Has it been disappointing at all? Has it exceeded expectations? What's your take on what we've seen from James Webb so far?
3: Well, not to use an overly used astronomical term, I think it's done way beyond light years and expectations. Mm-hmm. And give you some of the examples, peering back to the early days of when the universe expanded in the so called Big Bang. And then take a look at images that are coming from a planetary system, which people can see on any evening around 10 p.m. in the southeast. The bright white thing is Jupiter. Look what it's done. It's peered into Jupiter in the infrared, and it's shown us that uh, that we knew this before. But Jupiter has an amazing system of auroras, and they're caused by the satellite I.O., which all this material, since it's volcanic, helps induce this big magnetic flux. And I think it's only – we're only scratching the surface, Frank, on what I think James Webb is going to do. The only disappointment, one of the mirrors, one of the sections was hit by a meteoroid, and uh, apparently they – blotted it out like you would just get rid of it off a pixel that's bad on a computer.
2: I came across an article this week that dung beetles actually may have navigated via the Milky Way. Now, um, when you think about space exploration and when you think about the Milky Way galaxy, you don't necessarily think about the, the dung beetle. What are we learning about how the dung beetles use the Milky Way as a compass?
3: Well frank I was even more surprised because it's a great combination of biologic science in the insect world and also you and also in the astronomy world. So humans, birds and seals use stars for navigation. But this report, which has been confirmed, says the tiny little dung beetle that rolls the dung ball and tries to do it in straight <laughs> lines, God bless the dung beetle, we're finding out that its sensory you know, its vision can actually help orientate the movement of that little dung ball by guess what? Not the sun per se. But the actual imaging, not of individual stars, but of the Milky Way itself, which is even more fascinating, because let's imagine this. In brightly lit cities, dung beetles are not going to do very well. But out in the open, where where natural habitat is, they're able to confirm – now, did they get inside a dung beetle's head? No. But they're saying that they put all these situations together where they mimic the sky, did like a planetarium thing, and they're confirming (laughs) that the Milky Way, so amazing – a tiny little insect like that. So it's amazing that we're going to say this, and I'm sure people would agree and cheer. We're all connected, Frank, somehow, way, in this magical world and this magical universe.
2: Absolutely. You mentioned Russia, China, and the International Space Station a few minutes ago. Obviously, we're seeing a new level of hostility, and that's putting it mildly, between the United yes. States and Russia. What does that mean uh, for the future of joint U.S.-Russian space expeditions or space exploration?
3: Well, the Putin will fade, just like all dictators and all people that want to do harm, no matter where they are on the planet. Look at history. But I'm hoping, being an eternal optimist, that somehow, and I'm not naive in this, that we can get along in space. But I think each individual's country, like China and Russia, the United States, India, they're all working on individual programs, like we are with Artemis. But let's hope it doesn't get to the high ground, where now already the dark side of this is. There are now satellites in space. Maybe we have them, too, that can actually go and fetch a satellite, maybe hit it with a kinetic weapon, not like a laser or a bomb, but hit it with like a large piece of metal, like a missile, without explosions. But I'm optimistic that in the long term, I think we're going to figure a way. At least that's what I want to hope every day, Frank, when I wake up. You know, the news is pretty uh, pretty depressing a lot of days when we talk just politics here, and that seems to be the run of everything. But the truth of the matter is I want to be an optimist, and I think by exploring, like Stephen Hawking said, great navigators like Magellan, Columbus, and people like that, it's in our genes to explore and that's exactly what I'm hoping that we continue to do.
2: Did I see that you got a a new dog and a new dog with an <laughs> appropriately celestial name?
3: Yes, my significant other, God bless Diana. She's now hosting the dog right now and hopefully I'll see it <laughs> tomorrow, but it's a beautiful little bichon. It's actually one of the little combination dogs. It's real real small, but the name we both came up with, I think is so beautiful. It's called Aurora. And Aurora is what? She's the goddess of the dawn. And we're hoping to get a male dog too. And I'm gonna maybe we'll get some listener suggestions on what we should call the male dog because the little male and the little female, she's so cute. She's only four months old. And you know, Frank, uh, when you have an animal like this, you got to potty train it, and that's what the, that's what Aurora's going through right now.
2: Well, I would think if it's a, <laughs> if you get a male uh, he'll have to be named Borealis
3: right <laughs>
2: absolutely, or maybe Jupiter that's <laughs> <big one. laughs> uh Steve, it is always a treat to talk with you. I'll look forward to our next exchange. Thank you for your insight. thanks for being so generous with your time and sharing your insight with us.
3: Always a pleasure to be on the other side of it
2: absolutely. It's our pleasure to have you. Um, we're we have a lot to get to uh, over the course of the next three hours. We're going to cover everything from butter to the 2024 presidential race. I'll give you some highlights of this gala last night. A lot to get to. In the words of the great Casey Kasem, keep your feet on the ground and keep reaching for the stars. I am sure you've heard uh, that uh, yesterday a horrible crime uh, took place in Memphis in which four people were killed, three others injured. And uh, for reasons that I've stated previously, I am uh, not going to be talking about that because my fear is and my belief is that the more media attention there is to incidents like this where someone who's mentally unstable goes out and uh, tries to commit mass murder. My fear is the more media coverage of that there is, that the more that happens, the more that leads to copycat crime. So it's a little bit of a, a tough needle to thread in that you don't want to ignore something that involves the death of four people in a very horrific way, but I don't want to inspire the next mentally unstable individual to think oh oh uh, you know I could be talked about on the radio if I go forward with that whole situation so that's the last thing I'm going to say of it but I will say an interesting thing we were talking with uh, Alex Barnard on uh, on Friday and we were having some fun with him but his uh, new death metal song with death metal song which is called live streamed crimes deals exactly with this kind of situation that we saw in Memphis, which is uh, people engaged in very violent acts, um, live-streaming them on social media. Now, I'm certainly not suggesting that Alex Barnard's song led to this incident in Memphis. I know others have made that suggestion. I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that. But um, it is worth listening to that song again, I will tell you. So it's uh, available on iTunes and elsewhere. It's from Face Steeler. Uh, it's uh, live-streamed crimes, if you want to hear it. Here's a little bit of it.
1: In the age of mass consumption an evil lurks behind the scenes
8: Self-absorbed, psychotic, miscreants want
1: to put their faces on your screen.
2: So that's that. It's a face stealer live friends. streamed yeah. crimes. Uh, now, I did want to say that um, it, you know, I was as I was driving to Atlantic City on um, Sunday. I was uh, on the phone with the good folks at the Hard Rock trying to book my wife a gel manicure. And I talked about this at the time and we're going to do our AC report next hour, but as I'm on the phone with, with this interminably long process of trying to book her a gel manicure for $65 plus $13 fees plus, little did I know it, a, an additional fee to remove the existing gel, I got a phone call while I'm on the phone with her. right? As, and this phone call, no exaggeration, had already gone on for eight or nine minutes. And I get the phone call. And the person, I answer the call. It's somebody, it's a close friend. And I answer the call. I use the call waiting. And I say to the person I'm talking to, I say, excuse me, please just wait a second. Don't move. I'll be right back. And I click over to this other person, very high-powered individual. I'm not going to say who it is, but it's someone whose name you would know. And I say, hey, I'm sorry. Let me call you right back. I'm on the other line. Uh, Great, fine, no problem. I go back, or so I thought to my call with the folks at the Seminole tribe that runs the Hard Rock. And all of a sudden, I hear nothing. Absolutely nothing. I had gotten disconnected in the process of going to call waiting from one call to the other. Now, you can imagine. How the rest of that car ride went from my perspective. You have a a wife that's driving that's already annoyed that we have booked, you know, 20 hours worth of activities in a 12-hour time span. That she's driving through traffic. That, uh, you know, she's having such a hard time booking this gel manicure. And now I had made so much progress in trying to book the gel manicure only to take another call, tell that person I'm calling them back, and then all of a sudden... And then I need to call them back and begin this whole process anew. I will, spoiler alert, it was a tough rest of the car ride in the Murano vehicle. So Rachel says to me, you shouldn't do that. I said, do what? She said, you shouldn't click over to someone while you're on the phone with someone else. Especially if you're just going to tell them that you're going to call them right back. I said, what are you talking about? She said, unless it's someone like me or someone that's in an emergency and they're calling you three or four times and they need to get in touch with you right away, you should just see that they called. Don't let it disrupt your existing call and call them back later. I said, honey, I have never heard this. This is a new level of telephone etiquette. She says to me, do you realize that there have only been four times At most in my entire life where I've actually put someone on hold on a mobile phone for call waiting to then talk to the other person. And usually it's somebody that I'm waiting for a call from, like a doctor's appointment or someone uh, that I I absolutely need to talk to and I know I'm going to have a tough time reaching them. I said, Rachel, I have never heard this. And I didn't know that was the protocol. If that's the protocol, then I'll abide by the protocol. And uh, she says to me, yeah, because what happens is exactly what happened to you. More often than not, you start talking to so-and-so. Hey, you know, it's Frank. I'll call you back. And then all of a sudden, that's what happens. Now, ultimately, I did call after we finally booked this gel manicure. I do call that other high-powered individual back. And he says to me, He puts me on hold and he says to me, comes back to me after 30 seconds and says in words or substance, that was my wife. She said, um, you can call Frank Moreno back. I need to talk to you. That's what that person said to me. So he did the same thing with me that I had done with the gel manicurist, which is he put me on hold to then deal with what he had to deal with and then came back to me and said, I'll call you back later. And I wasn't offended in the least. But what Rachel said was that it was rude to the person that I was initially talking to, and you, of course, risk the danger of getting your phone call disconnected. Now, my question for you is, in the modern era, 21st century telephone, mobile telephone etiquette, is that really frowned upon? I've never heard it, except in the Moreno household. 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. You know, I was reminded of one of the last episodes of Seinfeld. I think it actually was the last episode of Seinfeld where they have this whole storyline about – mobile phones right and Elaine is on the street with George and Jerry and she's calling her friend I think it's Cynthia I don't remember I think she's calling her friend Cynthia to inquire about her father's health and this is kind of what the beginning of that telephone angle of the story sounds like
5: oh
7: I forgot to call Jill Jill, hi, it's Elaine. How is your father? Is everything okay? What? Uh, I can't hear you so good. There's a lot of static. What? I'm gonna call you back.
12: Jill's father is in the hospital and you call to ask about him on a cell phone? What? No good? Faux pas. Faux-pots. Big,
0: hefty, stinking faux pas.
12: <laughs> well, you can't make a health inquiry on a cell phone. It's like saying I don't want to take up any of my important time in my home, so I'll just get it out of the way on the street. And the street cell phone call is the lowest phone call you can make. It's an act of total disregard. It's selfish. It's dismissive. It's pompous. Why don't you think before
1: you do something?
0: Here's a thought. Bye-bye. <laughs>
2: So a little later in that episode, Elaine is talking to her friend, Jill. I thought it was Cynthia. It's Jill. And then she gets a call from Jerry and while she's on the phone with Jill and she gets a phone call from Jerry and she says uh, to Jerry, okay, you know, I'm on the other line. And Jerry says, get rid of them. Get rid of them. This is important. I got big news. So Elaine gets rid of the other person and then she goes back to Jerry Jerry gives her the news, which she found to be anticlimactic, although it was kind of big. And she says, that's what you got me off the phone for? I was talking to Jill about her father's health. And Jerry says, what? First, she you call her from a cell phone, and now she loses a telephone face-off? And I can understand that. And I've always been very clear on the etiquette of mobile phone or even conventional phone usage there, which is, it's very rude to lose a telephone face-off to someone, right? Or it's very, it's very demeaning and insulting to lose a phone face-off. If I'm talking to Matt Blaze and all of a sudden Alex, uh, Alex Barnard calls, and I say, hey, Matt, I'm sorry, Alex Barnard is calling, i got to talk to him. I mean, you can't help but be insulted if you're Matt Blaze, but... To briefly check out for 10 seconds, 20 seconds, 30 seconds, and then try and go back to your original call, I don't think that's rude at all. What do you think? Because I'm wondering if I need to redo my whole method of telecommunication. See, now the added problem that I have, and you can call in at 800-848-9222, is now everybody knows when I drive to work. And when I drive home from work, right? So people know if they want to reach me that uh, and not be on the air when they reach me that the best time to call me is between 5.15 and 6.15 and between 10 p.m. and 11 p.m. So now I'm on the phone that entire time. I just get one phone call right after another. I have no choice but to put some of these people on hold. But maybe I've been doing the wrong thing. Maybe I should say, all right, I'll see the missed call and then and then just call them back when one of my calls concludes.
13: What do you think? 800 848 I think it's ruder to put somebody on hold for 10 seconds and then come back. I'd rather you tell me. What? I'd rather you say to me, oh, look, i got to take this call. I'll call you back. Expect- so you'd rather lose the telephone face-off? I I don't, first of all, I don't care about the telephone face-off. That is the telephone face-off. But my time, I don't want to sit there on the phone and I have to wait for you because 10 seconds turns into 20 seconds, then 30 seconds for you to come back and go, oh, I got to go. You know, by the way. Nobody's forcing anybody to call me. People are welcome to
2: just not call. Let me make that very clear. I, I don't need to get all these phone calls all day long. Now, People can
13: just move
7: this, on. This is an ad. Email. Please do not call Frank Moreno. In the, Absolutely. In, in the, with the nail
13: salon, did you, you called them. Yes. And then you put them on hold. They kept me on this call for 12 minutes. <laughs> they needed uh, my wife's uh, middle name 10. and social
2: security number and the, her still... mother's maiden name and her blood type and her gender preference
13: on You're a manicurist fact, yeah.
2: and my credit card card number and and her birthday. There is
13: nothing even worse. Home address. That is the the worst possible is when you call someone and then go, and then go, Oh, could you hold on? I got another call I got to take. You know
2: what I need? I need a person, right? I need a person. You know, I was listening to David Limbaugh on with uh, James Golden yesterday on his show. Great interview. And they were talking a little bit about Rush Limbaugh's former chief of staff, Kit Carson. Now, they gave Kit Carson the title of chief of staff, but Kit Carson's only real role in Rush World really was just to say no to people. Rush hired Kit Carson and said, from now on, every request goes through you and you're going to say no to every single request. Because if it's something that I want to do or I need to do, then ultimately I can always go back and say yes. And and then that'll be fine. But your go-to answer should be no. Alex Barnard.
7: Well, I do have somewhat three points that I would like to make. One, I would like to... Once – I've said this to you in person, but on the air, I would like to thank you for the shout-out that you gave to me, Matt, and Kenny at that you gave at the uh, WABC Gala. My
2: pleasure. My pleasure. We're going to talk a little bit about the gala coming up uh, in a few minutes.
7: Two, I do agree with Rachel. I think it really? is very rude that you put people on hold only because texting sort of changed the game with phone etiquette, mm-hmm. I would say, in mm-hmm. that – If you think – if you, as the person who is receiving the phone call, think that whatever is – whoever is calling you is somewhat unimportant to whoever you're talking to on the phone, you can just text them and say, hey, I'll call you in a second.
2: You don't need to put them on hold. Kenneth, it looks like I'm, uh, I'm in the minority here thus far. Where do you come down on this?
14: Uh, personally, I don't think it's that rude to say, hold on a second. Yeah, yeah, get, I, have it, to, I have to find out who this is. Hold on. I'll, I'll get right back to you. No, it absolutely. I think, I,
7: I think it is kind of rude. I don't think that's rude. Well, it, because at the end of the day, you're making somebody else hold on. Right. For all of six seconds. It right. could be no, longer I, Frank, six I agree seconds, with you, Frank. Right.
2: Okay. So it's Kenneth and I versus Matt. Alex Barnard and Rachel, it probably means that I'm it's wrong. It's never
13: six seconds.
7: Yeah, yeah it's like one yes. second. the point. Right, I'm, it's I'm never six seconds.
13: Where is this person?
7: It's more like two minutes plus.
2: All right. Yeah. Well, I'm curious what other people think. 800 848 9222. 800 848 9222. Norman is in Brooklyn.
8: Hello, Norman. Yes, Frank. Um, Rachel's right. It's rude uh, unless it's an emergency or Mr. Katzmatidis. One of those things.
2: Well, that's right. You know, I see that cat signal. I don't care what I'm doing. I am immediately picking the, up, up that phone. We have no a matter separate what.
7: phone in the studio for that. That's right, <laughs> for, for <John>. that's right, <laughs>
2: <laughs> that's right. Uh, Norman, thank you. Eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two. I had no idea that this was a thing. Uh, I had no idea. Forget about the fact that it appears the majority of people agree with Rachel. I had no idea anybody thought this way, and yet here we are, 800 Just text and say you'll call back. But, you've got a problem. From now on, I will. Al is in Yonkers. Hello, Al.
8: Yeah, hi, Frank. You know, I probably would have done what you've uh, done, but if I was corrected, uh, I-, I probably would have to say that uh, Rachel is correct. Uh, I think possibly... Uh, the person who called uh, called you. I don't know if it played into uh, maybe because the person was a VIP is why you might have wanted to speak to the person and put the other person on hold. But I probably would have uh, just made that appointment because it was uh, a busy time and uh, your wife needed to get that done for the Labor Day weekend.
2: Well, uh, thank you, Al. I guess I guess you're right here. You know, you know what it was. It's. I was so done with this this phone call that I was on to begin with. They're going through every. At, they need so much information. What is your email? What is your phone number? What's your wife's phone number? Credit card or cash? Okay. Uh, can, can we have your address? Your address? Okay. What's your zip code? Zip code? Okay. Uh, are you staying at the property you visit? Okay. And this whole big situation. I mean, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. Etc. cetera.
6: 800 Frank,
7: Frank, really quick. Can I just make one last point before I before I uh, go away? I, I have if, a
2: feeling you're making that point irrespective of my permission to make that point. So go ahead.
7: I just want to say, because you, you did bring up the unfortunate event in Memphis, mm-hmm. which is horrible, by the way, um, and sort of tied it into my song. I want to make it very clear to every one of your listeners. I do not condone people who live stream uh violent crimes on any social media. You're really going out on a limb there, Alex, no, and no, taking no, a pretty controversial no, scale. No, I just I just want people to know that just because I recorded a song that sort of uh puts a microscope on something that happens in uh public uh public opinion which obviously the unfortunate event in Memphis uh highlights.
2: Yeah, it's just social commentary. Fair That's enough. At the Fair end of the day. Enough. Absolutely. Christina is in New Jersey. Hello, Christina.
15: Hey, good morning, Frank. How are you?
2: Great. Thanks, Christina.
15: Frank, I think it's very, very rude. Yeah, apparently- my brother, I'm sorry, my no, brother and ahead. I we are we're both truck drivers, so we talk a lot, especially during this time in the morning. And sometimes I call him and he sends me a message right away. saying, can I call you later? But when I'm talking to him, he won't say that to other people when
9: the other people are trying to call him. He answers the other people and let, lets me hanging. And I'm like, that's so rude. Does he so leave I'm, you? We always fighting. Does
2: he leave you hanging for a while or does he do it for 10, 20 seconds?
9: At least,
10: uh,
15: at least like two, three minutes. I think it's ridiculous and rude. He should just, you he should, you should just say, sister, I'll call you later and answer the other phone call, not let me
9: hang in.
2: Well, hey, Christina, I am getting an education today, and I had no idea that people felt this way. Uh, thank you, Christina. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. That's eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two. 848 Fugazi Tom, who did very well in uh, yesterday's edition of uh, The Other Side of Governor's Island, is calling to weigh in. Hello, Fugazi Tom.
6: Yeah, thank you, Frank. Um, I want to say something first. Um, Somebody uh, alluded to um, you letting people talk when you shouldn't. Okay, just listen. When I was on the contest last night and it was about guns, the guy I was uh, going against twice said, "Yeah, we should have guns and have race riots." You know, he said that twice, and I was like, "Uh, "You shouldn't be let. You should have cut that off. You shouldn't be." But I'm for letting people talk and 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 express themselves as long as they ain't being disrespectful but people will try to take advantage of that and try to sneak their agenda in to influence others, you might be innocently providing a platform for them to express themselves because you did that to one person. So do, do you get what I'm saying? I, I thought you should have cut that guy out because what he was talking about was, but you know what I'm saying?
2: I do, Tom. I actually, uh, let me put you on hold. Actually, I'm getting another call in. Mike is in Lake George. Hello, Mike. <laughs> I'll put you on hold. Hey, Frank. Yo, good stuff i was just talking to Ken. That must have been some
8: affair last night, man. That's that's aces, you know? Aces, it was a lot of fun. I'm you know? going to talk
2: about it in a minute. Absolutely.
8: Yeah, cool. Uh, no, no. You know what? If I mention, and I've had uh, mentioned that to friends in the past, hey, uh, I'm going to put you on hold, you know? No problem, Mike. You know, and maybe, you know, 10 seconds or something. I had one friend, I don't know, a while ago. He said, well, Mike, I was on hold for like, what are you timing me now? If it's that important, shoot me a text, dude. Shoot me a text. You know, I mean, it's no big deal. I think, you know, it's much ado about nothing, really, you know?
2: I agree. I agree. Uh, certainly not a call for a lecture. Thank you, Mike. Hey, uh, we're going to continue with your calls in a moment. 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead.
1: The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano.
7: 14 carat Doing it up like eyes mm. oh,
5: You say I got a touch So good, so good Make you never wanna leave So don't So don't Gonna wear that dress You like skin tight Do my hair real nice And sink syncopate my skin To your heartbeat I just want to look good for you, good for you, uh uh-huh. I just want to look good for you, good for you, uh uh-huh. Let me show you how proud I am to be yours. See, there's just a mess on my I still look good for you, good for you, uh uh-huh. I'm in my marquee
2: diamonds. This is Selena Gomez. Good for you. Uh, Selena Gomez was one of the few... Great artists uh, that uh, was not performing at our gala celebration yesterday. Um, yesterday, if you hadn't heard about this, WABC cele- had a big gala celebrating its 100 years as a radio station. And it would also happened to be the birthday of our owner, uh, John Kansomatides. And it was a big deal. I mean, everybody... Anybody who was anybody was there. First of all, it was an amazing party. It was at a great venue, uh, Cipriani on 42nd Street, top-notch. Everything was uh, top-notch. The food was great, great drinks, uh, great uh, people. The music was great, and um, it was one of those things. It was a good balance. The music was exactly my sweet spot, which it was, was. it was loud enough if people wanted to dance or just enjoy the music, but it was still soft enough that if people wanted to have a conversation, they could do that as well. A phenomenal party, and I know the kind of work that goes in to planning a party like this, and I know the bulk of the work was done by uh, Margot Katsimatidis, but uh, really the whole radio station – did put in a lot of work in making this into a reality. The president, Chad Lopez, and the program director, Matt Meany, Doug Kilzer, Stephanie Buongiorno, uh, everybody. And I'm not going to mention any more names. I shouldn't have even mentioned those names except for Margo because inevitably you leave a whole bunch of people out. But it was a wonderful affair, and I was flattered to uh, be invited. Now, uh, unfortunately, my, uh, we, we, my wife and I had a, a little bit of a child care issue. We were not able to uh, secure a babysitter, and um, she was really backed up with work. She was not going to be able to leave in time, so she didn't end up coming with me. So I went solo. So I'm rushing out of the house because, you know, it's just chaotic. You know what it's like with a nine-month-old, and when you're about to battle traffic into Manhattan, it's just chaotic. So uh, I, uh, I pick up my Tuxedo at the rental place, and they had read about the event in the New York Post they had read all about that it was going to happen they said oh wow that's the event you're going to okay so i uh take a quick shower and i don't know if this happens to you but i'd say 80 to 90% of the time that i sh- that i shave i end up cutting my neck my my skin on my face or my neck and bleeding doesn't matter what precautions i take It doesn't matter what kind of razor blade I use. It doesn't matter what kind of aftershave lotion I put on after I shave. I've tried it all, and I'd say still 80% of the time I end up bleeding. Now, it's only usually a little bit, but, you know, usually I'll I'll wait to put on clothes so as not to get blood on everything. But when you're in a hurry, you don't have that luxury. So I, uh, I, I, I shave in the shower so that I can do all my bleeding while I'm in the shower, and I, um, you know, do my thing, put on my tuxedo, and sure enough, even though I thought I was done bleeding, I get blood all over my collar, which is bad news because it only delays me further. So uh, I said to Rachel, Rachel's always got a Tide pen ready to go and all sorts of other cleaning agents. She is a, a cleaner par excellence. I said, honey, you got to help me out here and help me get this blood off my collar. She does. And I get the blood off the collar. And then... I start making my way into Midtown Manhattan, and even though traffic's going the other way, I hit a tremendous amount of traffic. Tremendous amount of traffic. Now, the first hour is cocktail hour. It's no big deal if I miss that, I don't think, although I like cocktail hour because I'm going to mingle. I wasn't really going to drink, one, because I have to be on the air, but two, because they asked me to present an award to Curtis Lewa. And if there's one time where you're not going to be falling down drunk, making a jerk out of yourself and slurring your words, it's when you're in a room with not only all of your bosses, but all of the most important people in New York and in America were in this room. It was an A-list room. So I would would not going to drink anything at cocktail hour anyway, and I hit so much traffic. I said, all right, usually I try for parking on the street. Not going to do it. I don't care what it costs. I am going to find a parking garage. I'll tell you what I'm going to do. Save a little time. I'm going to go on to a parking app that I have and book a parking spot right near the venue So th- and pay for it so that I can just uh, leave my car there jet over to the venue, get in there, be ready to go. Now, sure enough, as I'm driving in, I booked my parking venue, $29, $29 for Midtown. Parking anywhere for $29 in Midtown is the equivalent of parking for free. I mean, that's nothing. And then, sure enough, sure enough, I see – now, Rachel and I are now sharing a vehicle now. We're sharing her SUV. I see that uh, for an SUV, they call that an oversized vehicle, and there's an extra fee of
5: $15. Oh, yes.
2: So it's now $45 that I just paid. Okay, still worth it to save the time. There's so much traffic in Midtown. That I'm trying to get to the parking garage, and I just I can't get there. It's one of those things. This street is cut off. This street has a prohibition on right turns. That street has a prohibition on left turns. You, the, the address says blankety-blank Park Avenue. Okay, does that mean the entrance is on park, or is it on 43rd? Is it on 43rd or is it on 41st? My GPS says I'm there already, but I'm not there. And now I'm circling like crazy trying to find this parking garage. I can't park somewhere else because I already booked this. And then I see on the street... There's a parking spot on the street. I said this is great. Let me park on the street. And uh, I said all right. Okay, let me see if I can cancel my parking reservation. It won't let me cancel my parking reservation. It will not let me cancel it. Yeah, yeah, so I'm in for yeah, $45 yeah. no matter what. So I'm I'm ready to scream. And now I'm nervous, okay? And which is the last thing you want to do before you're, you know, speaking before such a, an important body of people. I'm nervous now. And I I I said, all right, I'm going to try this one more time. And now I'm really running the risk of being late. And I um, go around one more time. Finally, I'm able to go to this parking attendant, this parking garage, leave the car there, run over. And now it's just great. I'm now nervous, more red from being all amped up about this and sweaty because I've now sprinted four and a half blocks to make it to this party in Tuxedo shoes, no less so. I get to the party. I'm seated. I say my hellos. I end up sitting with uh, Mayor Giuliani and Andrew Giuliani, uh, uh, my friend Flipper, the former producer of the Bernie and Sid show, a uh, uh, lot, lot of other people, program director, Matt Meaney, nice table. Then immediately I get the tap on the shoulder. Said, Can you come backstage? All right. Uh, yes. Okay. Of course. Now I'm cool. I'm ready to go. Now, the other thing that we're dealing with here is now. Because I've been in traffic for an hour and a half, I really need to use the men's room. I mean, really need to use the men's room. But there is 600 people in this room. So it's not a room that you can maneuver around easily, right? You can't just hop over to the men's room and then hop right over to the backstage area. I mean, everything takes a a long time to navigate. So I realize I'm not going to have an opportunity to use the men's room until after I give my remarks presenting Curtis with this award. So I go backstage and I see they they start the kind of presentation with John Katsimatidis, our owner, and Chad Lopez, our president, doing sort of a, a thing and they're talking and everything. And it was good and it was amusing It was short and sweet. And John is basically, I see, hurrying Chad along to get the program going. Chad comes off stage and he says, in words of substance, yeah, John John just wants to get to the music and get to the program. And uh, he doesn't want me to say anything. He doesn't want long speeches. I want to talk about the ratings and the great things we're doing and the successes we're having at the radio station. But John just wants to get right to the music. And I shrug. I said, hey, what are you going to do, Chad? It's uh, John's birthday. It's John's party. It's John's radio station. If he wants to get right to the music, that's what you have to do. Now, um, as I was driving in, in an hour and a half of traffic, I did not have an opportunity prior to prepare what I was going to say about Curtis. So I said, all right, let me make this my opportunity to prepare my remarks. And let me say what I think I want to say. I'll run through it in my head while I'm driving and I'll speak it out loud. And I do that. I rarely do that, but I did. And lo and behold, I timed my remarks because, by the way, the remarks they gave us initially, I think I have the script here. Let's see. Yeah. Okay. The ori- uh, Yeah. The original script. Was something to the effect of, "I'm Frank Morano, uh, from the other side of midnight. Here's Curtis Lea." That was the if, to accept the award for 28 <laughs> years of service. So I said to Stephanie, who gave me the script, "I said, Stephanie, there's no way I can do this." I said, uh, "I'd like to talk about Curtis for a minute or two. Okay, she said, "Fine, sure. You know, we're trying to keep it short and sweet. You could talk for a minute or two, fine." So I'm in the car. And I timed my remarks because I told her that I would go a minute or two, and my remarks about Curtis were about eighteen minutes. About eighteen minutes. I said, "All right, this is not going to be good. I got to figure something else out. They're gonna they're gonna boo if I go eighteen minutes. I mean, I mean, this was great stuff. This was like half roast, half Academy Award. I mean, this is just just it was beautiful, beautiful stuff." So I said, I can't do this. I gotta shorten this. So I'm cutting this, cutting that. And this is while I'm driving and while I'm navigating traffic. And then I work it down to 14 minutes. 14 minutes. I said, okay, that's that's as short as it's gonna get. People are gonna have to deal. So when I'm about to get up there, I know that there's no way I can even do my 14 minutes of remarks. And so I hear the people, management. Curtis, I think John, which is the last thing you want to hear, off stage, basically yelling at me to hurry up and finish my remarks. Now I didn't do 14 minutes; maybe just five and a half, six minutes, whatever. And then Chad Lopez, our president, actually comes on stage. And now, now they try. It's one of those things. where you know? You ever start clapping so that you get somebody to s- stop speaking? You know, yeah, yeah, See, they didn't have the music. That was what they missed. You know, like we have for callers when they go too long, although Matt Blaze hasn't launched that button in a while. Um, Chad, they're, they're clapping, and I'm just ignoring it and keeping going because I have I got a lot of things to say here. Chad actually comes on stage, comes on stage. If he had had a hook, he would have pulled me off with this hook. And uh, and then I finally wrapped up, and I said, you know, here's, here's Curtis Sliwa, and... I was not about to go back to where I came from and deal with Chad and Curtis and everybody yelling at me for speaking for for far much longer than they expected. So even though I have no idea where I was supposed to go after my remarks, I left the stage on the opposite end. I went the other direction of where everyone else was so I could avoid that interaction. I actually ran away uh, so that I wouldn't have to deal with getting reprimanded for speaking so long so that I'm thinking. Did I speak too long? Did I speak too long? Okay, so then everything is uh, is going well. We start. We sing "Happy Birthday" to all the Virgos. Commissioner Ray Kelly was there. Uh, John, obviously, a lot of other people, and then Larry Kudlow comes over to me says frank good to see you because well you know i talk to larry from time to time i don't really see larry kudlow and you know i used to work on his show we have a good relationship he's been on this show and i've been on his show you know he's you know an interesting guy and we go back a long ways and um larry says frank i've never heard you talk so much i said well larry i thought you said you listen to me on the radio says i do i still have never heard you talk so much he says, "Eh," and you laughed and it was great so then um that was that was that a little bit later towards the end of the evening everybody's more relaxed the party's about about over everyone's almost gone they have this little side area with a bar where everyone's sort of congregating stretching their legs and the party ends party ends and i'm saying hello to yeah, everybody saying goodbye to everybody you know, about to about to leave and chad stops me and i said hey chad you know great party congratulations and he says he has a few choice words for me which i won't repeat on the air but he said what was the matter with you did you think you were doing a four-hour radio show i told you i i told you they weren't even letting me speak what are you going on forever about about four i told you short 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 so, uh, and then I said, sorry, but, you know, tough. He should know better than to give me a, uh, a microphone. Now, as I mentioned, the real highlight for me, uh, in addition to paying tribute to John and the radio station and everything, was I viewed this as an opportunity to get a whole lot of books signed. So I brought a duffel bag with me because I started accumulating all the books at home of people that were going to be in the room. And then I started accumulating books of people that might be in the room. I knew Cousin Brucey was going to be there. Okay, grab Cousin Brucey. I knew um, Tony Orlando was going to be there. Grab Tony Orlando's book. I know Governor Patterson's going to be there. Grab Governor Patterson's book. I know Dick Morris is going to be there. Grab Dick Morris's book. Well, I have two Dick Morris books that are unsigned. All right, let me grab them both. You've got a problem. And then uh, I knew Cudlow was going to be there. I grabbed Cudlow's book. And now this is a lot of books. And then I'm thinking, well, wait a minute. Alan Dershowitz goes on with John Katsimatidis every day. Should I grab Dershowitz's book? Yeah, let me grab Dershowitz's book. Wow. Rich Lowry goes on with Bernie and Sid every week. Should I grab Rich Lowry's book? Yeah, grab Rich Lowry's book. Okay. Charlie Gasparino goes on with, with uh, John Katsimatidis every week. Grab Charlie Gasparino's book. Uh, let's see. Uh, Bill Bratton, his new book. I've got the old one signed, but I don't have the new one signed. Oh, is he going to be there? I don't know. All right, let me grab Bill Bratton's book. So I'm walking around... In a in a room that's very crowded, with a giant duffel bag of books, and I, I went and I only got two books signed because it was tough to navigate such a large crowd. But I got Cudlow and I got Cousin Brucie, and they both wrote very nice, uh, very nice things. So um, so that was that. And then at that pseudo after party in the in the kind of side room where there's a bar. I see this guy that looks mildly familiar. Now, there's this whole group of people that works here who I have no idea who they are. I don't know what they do. I don't know their names. I don't, I don't interact with them except via email because I'm not here during the day. But I've seen them. So one of these guys who I'm sure works here, don't know what he does. Maybe he's in promotions. Maybe he's in sales. Maybe he's in video. Maybe he's in some other department I didn't even know exists. He looks familiar. So I said, hey, how are you? I shake his hand, and uh, I said, hey, uh, you know, I think we met. He says, yeah, did we meet on Friday? Yes, that's it. Hey, uh, good to see you. Good to see you, Frank. He says, yeah, oh, no, no, I thought you did really well in your remarks. I enjoyed that. I'm Alex. And I'm thinking he works here. I'm thinking he's a board op or something. And um, and so we're, we're talking and everything, and we're hanging out, not just him and me, but he's going on for a while. We're going all around. And I moved to another side of the room, talked to other people. And then this guy comes upon me again, and we're talking some more. And he says, uh, hey, just so you know, if you ever want me on your show, I'll come on. And I'm thinking, who is this guy? What, what is this guy, like a, a weekend board op? Well, what is he offering to come on the show for? And I said, oh, all right. Now, I'm not going to be rude to anybody. Um, I said, all right, well, that's great. What would you want to talk about? Which is my favorite thing to say whenever people ask to come on the show, which is often. And they very rarely will have an answer for this. And Alex Mitchell says, this fellow Alex says, um, well, whatever you want. I said, oh, great. Great. Uh, I'll find you in the global email, the company email. Just let me know your last name again. Mitchell. And then I remember... That Alex Mitchell was the reporter that wrote that piece for the New York Post about the 100 years of WABC. So he was here on Friday because he was working on that article. And sure enough, remember I was telling you how Chris Libertini was quoted in that article like crazy yesterday, even more so than John Katsimatidis? I see Alex Mitchell at the bar with Chris Libertini. Chris Libertini's trying to buy drinks and being as charming as I've ever seen Chris Libertini be as his payback for Alex Mitchell uh, quoting him so liberally in the New York Post. And actually, Alex Mitchell is a good reporter, so I probably will want to have him on in the future. But that was uh, it was interesting. Then um, obviously we had to come to work. But there was this whole cadre of people that had a separate after party at another bar in uh, in Midtown. But it was a, a great time. I have posted a number of pictures from the evening. I think the the professional photographer, Jill, is going to be posting some photos soon. But what I've done is I've pr- posted some photos on Facebook at facebook.com slash moranofan, some photos on Instagram at Morano Vision, that's M-O-R-A-N-O Vision, and some photos on Twitter, at Frank Morano. None of the same photos. So if you want to see all the photos that I have in my possession, you have to follow me on all three platforms. So that's on Twitter, at Frank Morano, uh, on Instagram, at Morano Vision, and uh, then on uh, on Facebook at Facebook.com slash MoranoFan. So that is the incredible true story of uh, the... 100th anniversary gala that we participated in yesterday i must say a good time was had uh, by all tony orlando came over to me gave me a big hug it was great to see him and he basically reprimanded me for not inviting him on the show more regularly. I said, Tony, you know, I'll be honest. I didn't think, you know, I thought I, I thought I was sort of inconveniencing you by asking you to stay up until 1 a.m. He says, no, I don't mind. I'll come on all the time. He said, I thought I didn't do a good job last time. Maybe that's why you haven't call, had me back. So I told him we'd have him back next week, and I'm looking forward to, uh, to that. Um, now, Alex Barnard was there. He was the only person on our staff that did not wear a Tuxedo. And, this uh, is true. Yeah, that's why we all acted like we didn't even really know who he was, but uh, he was there nonetheless.
7: Right. Well, so to burst your bubble on that, you know, uh, the birthday boy himself, John, who, by the way, happy birthday, John uh didn't wear a, a tuxedo himself. Uh, well, yeah, then uh, he I wore mean, a suit with a red polo shirt. He didn't even wear a tie. I, I do
2: feel like you're in a little bit of a different position in the WABC hierarchy yeah, than John is. Yeah, but if is.
7: you can't you cannot talk smack I'm about t- anybody. <laughs> well, hey, you you were going to talk smack about me. <laughs> you planned on it. I know um, you did.
2: Well, no, I mean According I I, did. To you, I know that's I know. true. Yeah.
7: Um one of the things that I thought was fun about the the behind the scenes by the way from this uh from the award ceremony was Doug who you mentioned on air came up to me about maybe one or two presenters before you and it was like where's Frank Moreno where is he where is he where is he and I said oh I, I saw him he went over to that table and he said well I need him to be here like backstage because he's about to present in a second and I said well I mean I just saw him two seconds ago I'm sure he's gonna I'm sure he's you know o- over there and he said Fra- Frank Moreno do you have he, he he touched his ear because he has an ear set he's like well, Frank Frank Moreno do, do we have Frank Moreno do we have Frank Moreno <laughs> You know, like he—he he, it was, was like a CIA uh, mission of sorts. Like it was—it was really funny. And then two seconds later, you were there, and so I thought, uh, uh, you know, yeah, they
2: only, so. had to, only had to ask. I mean, I'm not—I'm not difficult to find, right? No, you're not.
13: Your <laughs> your
7: speech
13: went on longer than Curtis's acceptance. That's true,
7: That's true. of the award now.
13: And the first thing
7: Curtis it did read like his Wikipedia page. The
13: first—the first thing Curtis said to me, and he goes, comes up to me, and he says. What the hell was that speech from Frank? What did he do? Read my Wikipedia page? First of all, I don't think that a lot of that is on his Wikipedia page. And
2: you know what? Curtis is going to have to deal. Curtis spends 12 hours every weekend attacking me in uh, a manner that is completely inaccurate and he's going to have to deal. That's the bottom line. You know what?
14: It Frank, is what it is. Frank, if I may add, you were you were like a librarian Returning the rental books, looking for these people to give autograph, That's autographs. For. True. That's
2: true. That's true. And also, I was, I, I, at one point, I was actually chasing Dick Morris out of the <laughs> building. I, I I didn't catch him, but that was disappointing. And also, too, I thought Joe Piscopo was phenomenal. Yes, he was, you know, he was uh, Piscopo performed. Dina Martin did a great job. Vinnie Madugno did a great job. Tony Orlando did a great rendition of. Uh, Ty Yellow Ribbon, uh, Alex Barnard and uh, Face stealer They did a great rendition of live stream crimes. Uh, really, really well done uh, overall uh, by all the musical artists. So really just a, a wonderful night. So that's uh, that's my perspective on on everything that uh, that happened. Now, most people said that they enjoyed my remarks about Curtis and Curtis. Uh, uh well, if they didn't then uh, that 'll learn new yeah, I mean they won 't have me speak at the next event i guess that's a, that's the deal all right eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two that 's one eight hundred eight four eight nine two 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 this is the other side of midnight straight ahead
1: the other side of midnight midnight
15: He's your numero Uno.
1: It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano.
5: On the ceiling, if you want me mm-hmm. Twice on the pipe If the answer is no Oh, my sweetness Means you meet me in the hallway oh, twice. twice on the pipe Means you ain't gonna show The great Tony
2: Orlando and Dawn not three times. He did not sing this song last night, but he did sing. Um, oh, he did sing this? I heard him sing a Yellow Ribbon. But I think um, when he was doing his second song, I was probably trying to um, attack Cousin Brucey to get him to sign my book. And I was behind the stage, behind the speaker, so I might have missed this. But he was great to see him. And he certainly was. Is still a great performer, in spite of the fact that he's in his late seventies. Uh, really, just tremendous. I tell you, who was great to see was uh, Frank Siller from the Tunnel to Towers Foundation. And uh, they have, He was telling me about some of the great work that they are doing uh, going into the um, going into this walk on September 25th, and I'm going to be there. And uh, he thanked me for uh, the money that we're raising. I said, Frank, there's no need to thank me. Uh, First of all, it's all our listeners. They're the ones that are doing all of the work in uh, making your work possible. And he said, well, thank them on my behalf. So I'm thanking you from Frank Siller. If you haven't yet done so, I would really appreciate it if you could make a donation of some – amount of money, whatever it is, to the tunnel to towers Foundation, uh, you can go to walk dot dot com that's walk dot other side so far uh, gotten uh, twenty five dollars from Joe from huntington twenty five dollars from my brother in- law Josh, ten dollars from uh, marianne boudin, and uh, we've gotten two hundred and fifty dollars from david ball. Hundred twenty five dollars from Donna. I think that's Donna in Huntington. Hundred dollars from uh, E. O'Brien Murray. Hundred dollars from Ellen Bass. Hundred dollars from Paul Regali. Uh, Fifty dollars from my mom Stephanie. So if uh, twenty five dollars from Jody Fendrick. So if you haven't done so yet, please make a donation. Just go to walk dot other dot com. And you'll help a great organization do some great work. And, uh, you, if, you know, you'll, you'll send us – you'll se- help send a message about our show and our place in the WABC hierarchy. And maybe if people see that we raise the most money of all the hosts, they'll say, okay, well, we don't care that Frank spoke forever in introducing Curtis. We still like him uh, because not only is he number one in the New York area – but at least he's helping to get get some great contributions to the Tunnel to Towers Foundation. So if you want to make a contribution, you can go to walk.othersideofmidnightshow.com. We are going to have a—I'm um, going to work on putting together the details of this tomorrow. But we are going to work on putting together a charity softball game. Now, it's not so much a, a celebrity softball game, but a charity softball game. So it's going to be Saturday, September 17th. And if anybody wants to go to that, it's going to be on Staten Island. You can email me; I'll give you the details. I think what we're going to do is anybody that wants to work, wants to watch, or anybody that wants to play, we're going to ask them to make a small contribution. So if you want, if you're interested in that, it's going to be Saturday, September seventeenth. Go to uh, you can email me Frank. at uh, wabcradio.com. dot com. I'm looking forward to that very, very much. All right. Next hour, we are going to go live to Atlantic City with Harry Hurley. A little bit later, Brian Kilmeade will be here. It was great to see him yesterday. Uh, We'll even talk butter next hour. A lot to get to. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Until next hour, your influence counts, so use it. Everybody, this is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Moreno, and uh, we've arrived at a crossroads, all right? There's two paths we could possibly take in terms of conversation at the moment. Both interesting, much like the Robert Frost poem, if only it was about selecting talk topics instead of walking down a a path I am stuck at the metaphorical fork in the road. And as Yogi would say, when you come to a fork in the road, and I'm not talking about the kind of Yogi that uh, Jeff Selby, uh, Joseph Selby was talking about with meditation yesterday, I'm talking about the great Lorenzo Pietro Berra. Um, Yogi would say, when you come to a fork in the road, take it. So, I will give Matt Blaze the option here. Matt Blaze, do you want to hear about butter or cryptocurrency? Oh, butter. Butter. Okay. Now, this is a true story. Sunday evening. Doherty's. Atlantic City. By the way, we're going to do the AC report with Harry Hurley coming, about, coming up in about 20 minutes. Um, we're talking where it's Rachel and me, young Carmine, my cousin Andrea, my favorite second cousin Andrea, my second cousin once removed, Kathy, her husband Howie, um, Howie's son Scott, who technically is my step second cousin, uh, my uh, Scott's wife Jody, who technically is my step second cousin in law, and uh, my um, and and Scott and Jody's two little children, who technically are my step second cousins once removed. But we all get along very well. We all go back a long way, so we just call each other cousins. But if you're being technical, that's the that's the proper referencing there. So it's before the appetizers come out, and they're passing around rolls. Rolls are quite good, and people are having butter on the rolls. And there's a whole big discussion about... How the butter tastes unusual. And Andrea, who is dating a master chef, has got all sorts of restaurants in the Philadelphia area, very well known in the chefing community. Andrea says, I know what the problem is here. The problem is that this butter is unsalted. She said her boyfriend, I don't know if he wants his name used, so I won't mention it. Her boyfriend left some butter at their house couple days ago and sure enough Jody at their summer house where they're all staying at Jody's daughter Reagan um, put some of this butter on her toast and she was complaining about the taste and her mother thought that she was just being a brat but she tries it and she realizes the problem the butter was unsalted unsalted and these guys are all having a lengthy discussion all about how unsalted butter really doesn't taste like anything. And then they said they're they're eating the butter on the rolls. They're all enjoying the rolls, but they're all complaining about the butter. I'll be honest. I don't really eat rolls uh, because, one, I don't want to spoil my appetite, and, two, I'm always trying to stay away from carbs because I I put on weight so quickly. So I'm listening to everybody go on and on about this butter. I said, all right, let, let me try this. So, Rachel... Passes me a roll. I put on some butter. Tastes normal to me. Tastes just like regular butter to me. And I said, honey, this tastes regular to me. This doesn't taste unusual. She said, that's because you don't eat butter. She said, you don't eat butter and you don't eat bread. You don't know. Everyone else knows. So this precedes a lengthy butter conversation. Lengthy. And sure enough, Jody blows Rachel's mind. Now, just so you understand where Rachel's coming from. Rachel is someone that loves to throw out food. And anything else, by the way. Anything that's not being used in a timely manner. Mugs, you know, thermi, whatever. She will throw them away. But especially when it comes to food. If there's any food that is one second over its expiration date, out it goes. I had to hire a lobbyist to save the cannolis that Sal Greco brought to our house one time because they were unrefrigerated for a day. I think it was cannoli. It might have been mozzarella. I think it was mozzarella. Whatever. It was just some dairy product. I had to use all of my persuasive abilities, all of my training as a talk show host. I actually had to hire a lobbyist to persuade her not to throw away the mozzarella. At our neighbor's party two weeks ago. There's a a tray of paninis, panini sandwiches. Lo and behold, I find out later that at the end of the night, my neighbor Tara and Rachel conspired to throw out all these panini sandwiches. My sister Claudia was in disbelief. She called me later that night, hungry. She said, what I wouldn't give for one of those panini sandwiches right now. I said, why? What happened?" She said, your wife threw them away. So that's where my wife is coming from. The thought of old food... It just does not exist in in her worldview. She will throw out food the way you and I breathe and blink. This is true. So go back to Sunday. Jody says that what she does in her household is they don't keep butter in the refrigerator. Instead of keeping it in the refrigerator... They keep it unrefrigerated in the pantry. You could have knocked my wife over with a feather. That someone, let alone a responsible lady of the household, running the household, would actually serve unrefrigerated butter. And then her husband jumps in. She said, Rachel, he says, Rachel, I was skeptical, too. I always thought butter had to be refrigerated, but I have to tell you, since Jody turned me on to this method of not refrigerating butter, it goes on so smoothly. It goes on uh it, it comes out of the container whether you're talking about butter from a bar or just plain old, you know, butter from a stick, it's like um It's like something I've never experienced before. And they were going on and on about how they thought this was the only way to serve butter. Rachel says, doesn't it go bad? And um, they said, no, no, it doesn't. It doesn't have to be refrigerated. So this led to a whole, this was the entirety of the dinner conversation, whether or not butter has to be refrigerated. Then we start doing all sorts of research. Uh, People are looking up articles. There's varying views on the Internet. There's varying experts, varying scholars. This person says must refrigerate, must refrigerate. This person says no, pantry's okay. And I said, honey, years ago, they didn't even have refrigeration. What do you think people did for butter? So I am thinking, see, I'm really not the right spokesman for this because I don't use butter really at all. I mean, I'm trying to think the last time I put butter on something. I don't know. I really couldn't tell you. I, I don't even know where we keep the the butter, honestly. But I now want to try this method of using unrefrigerated butter. I'm curious if you've tried this. I'm curious if you have any experience with this. I'm curious how you store your butter. And if you've had the same kind of um, success that my... Step second cousin in law Jody has had eight hundred eight four eight nine two 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 one eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. What's your story, Matt Blaze?
13: I never heard of that, and I, my first thought was, when you go to a supermarket, where's the butter? Where is the butter? I don't know. It's refrigerated. It I mean, refrigerated. it's in like, if not, it's in, the, it's open, but it's, it's cold. So that's my first thought. Now right. I'm looking it up too. And I'm seeing articles that says if it's salted, you can leave it not Ah, so that's the thing. We know of Jody's fondness for salted butter. Maybe it's because it's
2: salted she can get away with it. And
13: depending on the brand of butter, how much salt is actually in the butter.
2: But so just to go back to the salted conversation, apparently almost everybody uses salted butter. The only people that use the unsalted are people like my cousin Andrea's boyfriend who's a chef because I guess you cook. With unsalted butter, and you don't use it to spread on things, right?
13: And that makes sense.
2: So, will you try this? Will you join me in trying this
13: unrefrigerated butter methodology? I, I do have salted butter in my house, and I will take it out of the refrigerator and try it like a day later and see what uh, happens. Let
2: please do 800-848-9222, 800-848-9222. Let me say hello to Johnny in Garden City. Hello, Johnny. 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 Oh. Can you hear me? I got you. I got you. You got Matt Blaze okay.
12: there for a minute. Uh, oh, problem. So uh, this happened a few weeks ago. I was on a date with this girl I know. Went to the beach, packed some food and beer, and um, she gives me a beer, and the beer, <laughs> it was expired. And she said, oh, I had my refrigerator, my daughter brought home, and I was I drank. I was thirsty, but I didn't say no her. At one point, she goes, John, how was the beer? After I drank I go, it was good, but it's been expired for a couple of years. She's, oh, my God, I can't believe it. And I look at the date. And it was a random two letters. It said BC. I go, look, this is BC 2010. She goes, oh, my God. Goes, is this is before Christ. I said, no, it's before COVID. <laughs> <laughs> How did it taste? Tasted great because it was refrigerated. So she said she had a refrigerator for a long time, but she had not lost the concept of time with the, with the people. It was great. And, and there's a difference.
2: Interesting. Well,
12: thank you. Yeah. yeah, thank you, John. Usually, usually, you you, you usually, you beer when it goes bad has a lot of floaters in there. So, I knew it was that's still true. Dead, so. Yeah, no, no, no. I, I think, Enjoy i the show, Frank. Thanks, John. Thank I
2: appreciate you. it. Very nice. We're going to go uh, live to Atlantic City to talk with Harry Hurley in just a minute. By the way, I know uh, many of you were wondering uh, about what Alex Barnard's butter situation is. Alex Barnard, by the way, has perfect pitch. Much like uh, Chris from the Catskills was an elected official, and uh, John from Brooklyn attended uh, Stuyvesant High School, but uh, Alex Barnard uh, indicated whenever he goes to his grandmother's house, she leaves butter out. everywhere else he goes, it's refrigerated. I think that's because my his grand this is what he says. I think that's because my grandmother is 98 though. I don't think so. I don't think it's an age thing. I think maybe his grandmother, because cause Jody, my step-second cousin-in-law, she is young. She's in her mid to late 30s. So I don't think it's an age thing. I think it's people who know about butter. This is what they do. And I'm going to try it. I'm, I'm going to have butter this week just so I can try this. 800 9222 Chris is in Mount Vernon. Hello, Chris.
10: Hey Frank, yeah. Well me personally we, we me and my wife we, we keep our butter in the fridge but she we was after just all I've certainly this, that done
5: that worse.
8: They, I'm sorry, sell, Chris, go ahead.
10: They... Hello? Yeah, go ahead, Chris. Go ahead. Yeah. Okay, so yeah, they so they sell they sell this thing on Amazon that you can you can put your water you could put you put water in the bottom and you fill it the top part with butter and you put the the part with the butter upside down in, and and the water kind of seals around the edge of the jar and keeps it fresh on the mm. countertop. So you can have nice, soft butter. And my wife is talking about, oh, maybe we should get that and we have soft butter all the time. I'm like, I don't know about that. It's a little weird. But, uh, yeah. But we keep ours refrigerated, though.
2: I don't know. Well, um, I, I understand. Okay. Well, so that, that's one vote for refrigeration. Original Rick is in New Jersey. Hello, Original Rick.
8: Good morning Frank. Good morning. Uh, yeah, my my grandmother never refrigerated it. She always kept it next to the bread box, a, a little container with the bread, uh, the butter so it didn't break the bread. But here's something I just found out and you can research it. Uh, I didn't believe it. I had to research it myself.
4: You know, mayonnaise does not
8: have to be
2: refrigerated. Well, I always
8: thought it. So, do you? Hours, is that what you hours, do? You is that what
2: you do? You keep your mayonnaise unrefrigerated as no, well? No,
8: I'm afraid. I'm afraid to.
2: Well, what about butter? Do you almost, do the same thing with it, butter?
8: I, I, I don't really. And it, it. Yes and no. If I leave it out by mistake, I'm not afraid that, to eat it. No, but, but in I, general,
2: I, I, I'm not talking about accidental. I'm talking about. As a method of storage, do you keep it uh, Do you keep it unrefrigerated on a regular basis? I
8: keep it refrigerated, but I'm planning to not keep it refrigerated after hearing all this because it always ruins my bread. It's right, always-
2: well, exactly. And that's one of the things that, I, that's one of the reasons I think I don't like butter is it's always too hard. And thank you, Original Rick. Um, Laura Kelberg on the Facebook page, and you could join the Facebook page, facebook.com slash Morano fan. This is what she writes. I have been eating my room temperature butter for many years. Many years. And she's still here listening to this show. She says, I keep mine in a lock, lock and lock airtight container. What is a lock and lock airtight container? Is that like a Tupperware? I don't know what that is. All right. See, that's the danger of responding to Facebook comments rather than phone calls. 800 Robert in Queens. Butter. Refrigerated or unrefrigerated?
4: Doesn't need to be
8: refrigerated. I've been keep my butter in a butter jar or uh, butter dish for decades.
2: And and you're Never still here. It. It's working out well for you.
10: Oh yeah, I've been doing it almost all my life. I mean, I only keep out one stick at a time.
2: Oh, oh yeah. Uh, I I mean, keep the and what about the rest? Yeah, what do you do with the rest? I put that in the fridge. Okay, so you store the long term butter. In the refrigerator, but the butter that is poised for use, you keep that out of the refrigerator.
8: Right in the cupboard.
2: Interesting. Interesting. You
10: know, like two, three. Beg your pardon? Yeah, I, I I'll keep it in there for a week or two or three or whatever, however long it lasts.
2: All right. Well, thank you, Robert. Robert, you ever experiment with? I can't believe it's not butter.
8: I don't like fake butters. I I'd rather just. You use the real stuff, margarines and fakes. I just I never
2: I've had it, don't really like it. Yeah, well thank you, Robert. I um I again I don't really put butter on much anyway, so I don't have much of a need for I can't believe it's not butter. But my wife uses that once in a while. And I recently looked that up and apparently it's basically margarine. Um she uses it I think she uses it for cooking, if I remember correctly. You know, to grease a pan or something so that she doesn't use olive oil like I do and then scald uh, scold our son when he's crawling around by her feet, which is one of the reasons that she's a far better parent than I am. But um, it is interesting because if you're used to I can't believe it's not butter and all of a sudden somebody plays a trick on you and they replace that with real butter, the consequences could be disastrous, just as they were for... Peter Griffin, that's how he ended up in a straitjacket. After all, I've certainly done worse. I replaced Peter's I can't
16: believe it's not butter with real butter.
7: But what?
11: I I can't, I can't believe.
0: I don't know, Doctor. Looking back, (laughs) I think it may have been real butter.
11: Your husband murdered three children. (laughs)
2: Lenny in Fort Lauderdale. Lenny, it's hot in Florida. What do you do about butter? Butter. Uh, I discovered
6: about six months ago, maybe two years, leave the butter out. It's much better. Easier to spread. Not a pain in the butt. Put it on a bagel or putting big lumps of hard butter on top of a piece of toast. Uh, I'm all for the non-refrigerated butter.
2: Uh, well, Lenny, you've got a convert in me between you, uh, Jody, and um, the original Rick's grandmother and Alex Barnard's grandmother, who I understand listens to this program. Um, I am going to try this. I am on jumping on the unrefrigerated butter train. What about you, Matt place I'm going to try it. it. I'm going to try it. it. So this take... is we might be able to start a real societal trend here, and just do like a, a Boston butter party. Get people to. Open up their refrigerators, whip out that butter, be it whipped butter or sticked butter or tubs of butter, uh, whether it's butter for popcorn or corn on the cob or toast or corn muffins. Do people put butter on corn muffins? I think they do. Or English muffins or bagels, whatever the case may be. Rip that butter out of your refrigerator and put it on the table because this town needs an enema. 800-848-9222. Ed is in Massapequa. Ed, what's your butter situation?
10: Well, hello, sir. Thank you for taking my call. Um, I want to say I knew this girl from uh, from Florida, and she always had butter out on the table. And I don't know if Landa Lakes, and I don't mean to give them any kind of accolade or praise now, but um, she would always have the, the butter on the table, you know, and, and it was out. And uh, I don't know about, you know, how, how good it is or how long it'll last, but the, I prefer sticks you keep the rest of the sticks in the refrigerator but whatever you're using for like the week I guess it doesn't go bad so I'm with I'm with these guys from Florida and the rest of the guys you just mentioned you know leave it out
2: I'm doing it, Ed. I am on this situation. I am on the butter train, the unrefrigerated butter train. Hey, here's a guy that's a real expert calling in. Ed the Milkman in New Jersey. Ed, you are a professional. The rest of us are just amateurs when it comes to dairy. What's What's your recommendation on how to consume and how to store butter?
4: Well, if you we think about it, years ago,
8: my mother, my grandmother, we had a butter dish with a cover that they kept one stick of butter in on the table. The rest stayed in the refrigerator. And if you go to almost any diner or restaurant and they bring out the butter in those little, uh, it's called a butter cup, and you peel the top off and you spread the butter, um, those restaurants don't keep that refrigerator. It goes on the table, back to the kitchen, on the next table. Uh, the only thing that they keep in the refrigerator is what they have in stock.
2: So I I will, I will, again, Ed, as a professional, what do you do in your own household?
8: We keep it in a refrigerator. Actually, I use whipped butter at home.
2: But so whipped, whipped or sticks, what's the difference? Why, why do you keep it refrigerated?
8: I, my wife just does Or
2: just, I don't know. Well, you (laughs) got to check with her. I want, I want you to report back. Ed, thank you. You know, I used to watch this show, um, The Single Guy. I think it was only on for one season. You remember that? It was on NBC. You know what NBC would try to do is they had these monstrous hit shows on on mostly Thursday nights, but other nights as well. And so what they would do, they had Friends on at 8, and then they had Seinfeld on at 9, and then they had ER at 10. So that would leave two gaps for them, 8.30 between Friends and Seinfeld and um 9:30 between Seinfeld and ER so they could put any shows on there and they would get monstrous ratings and sometimes if the shows were good they would uh, become little hits in their own right and they would start another night based on must see TV based on that show like frasier or uh, you know or these other shows sometimes the shows were not great and they didn't take off but one of the shows like suddenly susan uh, caroline in the city I think Suddenly Susan did okay, but uh, Caroline in the City, and one of them was The Single Guy. Really an interesting show. I liked it. I mean, it was, it was good for what it was. It was a sitcom, let's face it. Ernest Borgnine played the doorman on the show in a recurring role. I thought it was clever. I mean, the fact that I still remember it 25 years later I think is very telling. But this is one episode where the main character, who's a single guy in New York, uh, he starts dating – a famous, not famous, but a well-known spokesmodel. And she's the spokesmodel for a product called Butter in a Can. And years later, and I always thought that was a clever idea, have a butter in a can. And I I, I always, I had this jingle. And keep in mind, I have not seen this show in 25 years. right? But I still remember the jingle, and I looked for it. I couldn't find it online. I still remember the jingle for this fictitious product on this fictional TV show for butter in a can. And the way the jingle would go was, if you like butter, you'll like butter better. You'll like butter better in a can. Ooh la la. And uh, I cannot but think that maybe if we can get a jingle for unrefrigerated butter, maybe we can make this a worldwide trend or at least a, a national trend. Look, we got a, a highly rated show here. You couple that, a great idea with a great jingle. We have a lot of musical people that listen. We have uh, Alex Barnard, a master of uh, death metal, who performed last night at the WABC Gala, did a great job with Tony Orlando and Joe Piscopo. We got Andy B. We got uh, Stevie G in The Destroyers, who, who has our theme song. What about One of these guys should come up with an unrefrigerated, salted, butter jingle in line with what I just described, you if you like butter, you 'll like butter, better, you like butter better in a can, Ooh la la eight hundred eight four eight nine two 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 Harry Hurley is here we 're going to talk to him about things other than butter in just a minute because, uh, as Lyndon Johnson would say, the uh, nation can afford both guns and butter. Roger is calling from the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, Roger, uh, what do you think of the uh, primaries yesterday?
11: Uh, I was just a little bit disappointed with, with the uh, governor's uh, – uh, you know, simply because I voted for the other guy. I'm, 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 the, the guy that was voted on the Republican side, he just runs too many of the the talking points, whereas the one that the, the Republican candidate did not uh, get in, he was simply a businessman with that mentality.
2: Uh, so you voted in the Republican primary, I guess, right, not the Democratic primary?
11: Well, actually, uh, independent. They gave me a Republican. Uh, I, I was Republican, but, but I switched to independent. And for some reason, they just handed me a Republican ballot. I didn't think to my, you know. Anyway.
2: Yeah. Uh, so, all right. Well, what's your take on butter?
11: Oh, uh, we were born and raised on unrefrigerated butter. Was always up in the cupboard. Always up in the cupboard. And the funny, I'll give, a funny little butter story is, um, uh, we had a parakeet. And at supper time, you know, we have bread and butter along with our meals. And the parakeet, every once in a great while, my mother, you know, we let the parakeet out, and he'd walk around, and um, and he he loved butter. He liked to nibble the butter butter off of somebody's slice of bread. He'd go from from place setting to place setting, and uh, nibble the butter off the bread. By the way, do you know the bread? You can get bread in the can. Brown bread in a can. You
2: know that, right? I I did not know that, and uh, I am not going to do that, Roger. I appreciate that. Harry Hurley is here. Those of you that are online uh, to talk about butter or any other subject, I will get to you. So you're welcome to continue to hold. Otherwise, um, you know, don't. And our lives will just continue pretty much as they were. Uh, We'll go live to Atlantic City straight ahead.
5: You're the reason why I in my shirts, why I eat at the buffet, butter. Butter You got your very own kind of nice. We all live inside a butterwall. Oh, butter.
1: Butter. The other side of midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Marano. Marano.
14: This is the AC Report.
2: Trouble bussing in from out of state, and the DA can't get no relief.
5: Gonna be a rumble on the parma
6: and the gambling commissioner's hanging on by the skin of his teeth.
5: Everything dies, baby, that's a fact. But maybe everything that dies someday he comes back. Put your makeup. Stitch your hair up pretty And meet me tonight
2: Ah, yes, it is time for our weekly look at one of the most interesting communities in all the world. And the man that will be our radio Sherpa on that journey is a terrific radio talk show host. He's with uh, WPG in Atlantic City, also happens to be a former Trump casino executive, one of the most influential media personalities in all of South Jersey, a very knowledgeable guy who you can hear regularly as a substitute for Brian Kilmead on WABC and uh, on uh, Fox News Radio in general. It gives me a great deal of pleasure. to Welcome back, Harry Hurley. Harry, it has been too long. It's great to talk to you.
9: Frank, great to be on the other side of midnight.
2: Um, So I was just in Atlantic City last weekend, and it was packed. So now that Labor Day has come and gone, uh, we can do sort of a a post-mortem in terms of how Atlantic City fared for the summer. Now, even Atlantic City at its nadir, always did really well during the summer. Uh, what What's your impression of how Atlantic City did this past summer as compared to previous years?
9: Well, it was a spectacular summer, record-setting summer, average rack room rate uh, higher than it's ever been. You see the crowds. Uh, the crowds were there. The challenge is going to be how do we do during the shoulder and the off-season months? Now, Atlantic City isn't like it used to be uh, long ago. After Labor Day. That's why they started the Miss America pageant to stretch the summer another Mm -hmm. week. Uh, It's much different than that. It's a 12 month town, Uh, it's a serious destination resort, and we'll be fine. But obviously, uh, summertime, the beach, the boardwalk, the Atlantic Ocean, you just can't beat the backdrop.
2: No, that is uh, that is for sure. I'll tell you one thing that I, I noticed that was much more prevalent than the last time that I had visited, and it, I wasn't crazy about it, to be honest, was on Sunday when I was walking on the boardwalk when it was super crowded, the smell of marijuana was pretty overpowering. It Now that New Jersey has moved towards legalization of recreational marijuana, is that the norm or is that maybe because it was a holiday weekend?
9: No, it's uh, unfortunately the norm. It's terrible. Never should have happened. It never delivers the revenue that it's promised. It creates all kinds of problems in terms of lost productivity. I mean, oh, you got me started on that. Uh, it, it's terrible. I, I was a- always opposed to it. Um, for the medicinal, if someone has sure, of cancer, course. they have you know, Parkinson's, MS, tremors, pain, and it helps someone eat and keep their food down, I'm all for that. This recreational marijuana is a disaster.
2: Yeah, that was a real bummer. I was uh, sorry to see that. And again, I don't care if people smoke marijuana. It's just such an overpowering smell uh, that I hate to walk around, especially with my you know nine-month-old son, and have us both be you know attacked with this wave of uh, of marijuana odor. But uh, I guess uh, I guess those are the times we're living in, uh, Harry. One of the things that I look forward to. Every year in the fall is the terrific event that you uh, put on for your charity. You've had some... Great honorees in the past, including people that are uh, no stranger to our audience people like Johnny Russo, people like Tony Orlando, people like Joe Piscopo, people like Bob Grant, Roger Stone, uh, the Brian Kilmeade, Todd Starnes. The list goes on and on. Uh, what's happening this year? I'm excited to go. Tell us about uh, when your charity event is happening this year.
9: Well, Frank, we can't wait to welcome you and Rachel. We are um, holding our 13th annual charity dinner on friday october 7th as you know at resorts casino hotel in atlantic city they're an amazing host our featured guest of honor and keynote speaker is united states congressman jeff andrew and think about the timing one month before election day the most consequential election probably since the civil war certainly and everyone listening to Frank Morano's The Other Side of Midnight program, the number one program in New York, uh, certainly the most important election in our lifetime. It's going to be a great night.
2: Well, yeah, it certainly will be. Now, I know this event uh, sells out pretty quickly. Are there still tickets available if people want to try and come?
9: Yeah. Uh, we, we always can, you know, put another table in. Uh, we're in good shape. We have um, about 225 people right now. Wow. And we're, we're in the range of probably... 250, where where we'll be for October 7th. Great.
2: So, if people want to go uh, to that event uh, and they want to maybe buy a ticket, what's the best way for them to reach out to you in order to facilitate that?
9: I would say uh, just if you just Google my name, my email, free name pops up and click on my picture and send me an email.
2: Yeah. Now, I I know I've seen you at the uh, Talkers Conference and you always bring a check from your charity to the Broadcasters Foundation, which does a lot of great work helping the, uh, helping broadcasters that have fallen upon tough times and their families. Where else uh, does the money that's raised for these charity events go? Who do you help?
9: Well, we've helped hundreds of charities over the past 15 years. We've raised more than $1.1 $1. 1 million. We have very little uh, overhead. No one gets a salary Uh, We drive every dollar that we can to the bottom line at the Harry Hurley charity. And, I mean, it it would take me probably an hour to tell you every uh, charity that we've donated to. Hospitals. You mentioned the Broadcaster's Foundation uh, of America. We started out seven years ago with a $1,000 grant. We have upped it by $1,000 each year, and we're going to continue to do that uh, going forward. This year we'll be bringing a check. Uh, For seven thousand dollars. So we help a lot of people, Frank.
2: Well, that's terrific. I'm looking forward to being there. It's always a really special event and uh, one that I look forward to every year. Um, I did want to ask you about Governor Phil Murphy. Governor Phil Murphy is now term limited. Uh, He's appeared on your show several times, more so since the uh, COVID lockdowns. And even though I I think you guys are sort of on opposite ends of the political spectrum, it seems like both of you have sort of a respect for one another. And he certainly has a respect for the substantial audience that you've built in South Jersey. He was on Fox News Sunday, and they were asking him about running for uh, president. This is what Governor Murphy had to say when asked about that.
10: Uh, I've said this publicly and
8: I said it to the president privately. He says he's running. Uh, I take him on his word. Assuming he does run, he'll have no bigger backer than yours truly.
2: Uh, He did seem to leave himself a lot of wiggle room there, Harry, since he can't run for reelection. What does your gut tell you about whether or not Governor Phil Murphy is going to run for president?
9: Well, let's start with um, President Biden. I don't think there's any chance that he's running again, because if you if you follow the uh, script, everything they say, the exact opposite is true. So they keep saying he's running. You he might even announce early, might even announce before the midterms, which means you just all you have to do is default. They say the border is is uh, not open. It's closed. We know the opposite is true. Uh, in, inflation reduction, it, it raises inflation. Every single thing they say and do, the opposite is true. President Biden, good wishes, happy retirement, zero chance he's running for reelection, 100% chance that Governor Murphy is running for president.
2: 100% chance.
9: You're certain? I, 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 let's put it this way, and, because he is a man of his word, and he's a good man. We do disagree. I mean, our philosophy of governance couldn't be more different, but we are friends. We're not fake friends. Uh, and it does show that you can still get along. It used to be the way, as you know, Frank. Sure. It used to be the way that it was. You could disagree with someone politically and still be friends and and still have a rapport. That's all changed, and it's it's really broken our country. But I, I give President Biden almost zero chance that he can run. I mean, he cannot conjugate a verb. He doesn't know what day it is. He doesn't doesn't know what he's saying. He's not going to run. I don't I don't blame them for saying he is running because you don't want to. Completely destroy your Mm -hmm. only term by lame ducking yourself uh, right out of the box. He's not going to run. The only way Governor Murphy does not run for president is if President Biden does run for reelection, because Governor Murphy is a good man and he'll keep his word.
2: Well, it's going to be interesting. Now, um, another person you know quite well, not just from your media interactions, but from when you worked in the casino business, is uh, Donald Trump. You were his vice president long before Mike Pence was. Um, what, um, what's your take on what Trump does?
9: He's running. I, I don't believe he'll be charged. If he is charged, he's running anyhow. You pass this prologue, you look at how long all that other stuff went on years and years. He'll, he'll be running for the nomination, and he'll be running for president in 2024 with these same type of Russian collusion, lies, and all of this. Uh, no matter what happens, he's running
2: and um how about chris christie unlike a lot of the other potential candidates for president chris christie who i know you also have a, a relationship with christie does not prepare he he doesn't appear to be deferring to trump in terms of a prospective candidacy do you see christie going forward with a candidacy
9: 100%
2: and so so we're going to see a, a, a christie trump primary Versus Murphy, and then whoever the Democrats put up.
9: And and, and Frank, by the way, not just uh, Trump, Christie, Trump, Christie, Trump, Christie, Pence, Mm -hmm. possibly Trump, Christie, Pence, uh, and the governor of Florida, Ron DeSantis. I mean, it's it's gonna it's not going to be like fifteen clown cars and the (laughs) Democrats on stage um, with fifteen podiums, but there will be multiple challenges for the Republican nomination.
2: And how do you handicap it? Do you think it's Trump's to lose at this point? That's the conventional wisdom. He
9: he can't lose. Can't lose. He can't lose. The only way he's not the Republican nominee in 2024 uh, is if he doesn't run.
2: Well, it's certainly going to be uh, interesting uh, to see New Jersey and so many of New Jersey's uh, statewide politicians, possibly even including Cory Booker, Cory Booker playing such a prominent role in the uh, in the 2024 presidential race. We're we're using you to monitor that last week. Harry. By the
9: way, Frank, Christie should have run against Barack Obama in 2012. He should have run in that election and he would have won. That was his high watermark. So, do you think his time has passed at this point? It, 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 I don't want to say something like that because he's a good man. He's still a young man, and you know he has a lot to offer. But in in presidential politics, Mario Cuomo could have been president. He didn't run. He didn't think he could beat uh, George W. Bush. If he had run, he would have won. Um, it, it's timing. It's circumstances. Bridgegate was a bunch of, of hooey. But it really did. The the Democrats that I spoke to about that, they were shocked at how much uh, damage they caused Governor Christie with Hmm. that. Uh, His his high watermark was 2012. He would have beaten Barack Obama.
2: You know, it's you're so right about uh, the the importance of timing when it comes to these races. You know, a lot of people were critical of Barack Obama for choosing to run for president in 2008 before he'd even served a full term in the in the U.S. Senate. Now, had he waited, which would have been the conventional wisdom to at least wait, defer to Hillary Clinton, see what happens, who knows what would have happened? He probably
9: never would have been president. Right. Is what would have happened? Right. Bill Clinton, no Democrat. Al Gore, even though he became Bill Clinton's running mate, Al Gore wouldn't run. Dick Gephardt wouldn't run. Mario Cuomo wouldn't run. Remember... How hot Mario Cuomo was with that keynote address that he gave! Sure, it shining wallpaper. city
2: on a hill in San Francisco, uh, stirring, eighty-four.
9: Stirring orator. Uh, his sons are not a pimple on his father's ass, um, <laughs> but uh, he was great. I've interviewed him. He was a great man and a Democrat, but a reasonable Democrat, not like these crazy ones that we have today. Uh, it's Bill Clinton wasn't afraid to run. And look what happened. Yeah, gumption. When you you become the nominee, Frank, for president, Walter Mondale, who served four years as vice president, said the highest office he ever held was the Democratic nominee for president of the United States. If you are one of those two major party nominees, anything can happen. Mm. You, You disqualify your opponent. You are the president. And that's what happened. Basically, Bill Clinton just caught a wave. Ross Perot helped. And this this guy becomes a two term president of the United States.
2: Yeah, no, it's certainly it's fascinating to watch. And if you look at uh, every election, pretty much since eighteen hundred, it's issues of timing, it's issues of luck, it's issues of circumstance, and that all all comes into uh, all comes into play. Uh, by the way, we were talking last week about this court decision, which says that the casinos have been underpaying the state of New Jersey in terms of uh, its taxes. I know uh, there's going to be appeal, an appeal on that. What's your take on how that whole thing went down and where it goes from here?
9: The genesis of it is pure. It's the fairness issue, fairness, that that your property, my property, gets valued one way, but casinos got a special deal. I'm concerned because... What the casinos would owe if they were assessed differently, if they were assessed exactly like a typical property owner, it would be devastating, and there would be some that wouldn't be able to write the check. Uh, so I understand why the group Liberty and Prosperity, and they they got to give it to them because it's a tiny group, but they're mighty, and they're they're ferocious, and they they stayed on this and. I think they were even shocked that they won. Uh, I think it will get overturned on appeal. Mm, Judges never like to get reversed. Mm -hmm. I think it will get overturned. But there's a great case to be made, whether you go equal protection clause, you can't treat one person differently than another. On the merits, the casinos should lose. But this is New Jersey, after all. (laughs) All things are possible. And I think they'll get a friendly judge and it will be overturned, and they'll come up with some convoluted reason for doing it. For those who don't know, on Frank's show, four casinos were closing. We didn't have a recession. We didn't have a great recession. We had a depression. Four casinos, tens of thousands of jobs hemorrhaged. Atlanta County, New Jersey, was the highest unemployment rate, highest home foreclosure rate in America. The casinos needed tax stability. Pilot, which is payment in lieu of taxes, was born. And it said, we're going to give casinos a number of years going forward where you'll be able to plan your business uh, plans knowing that your taxes are this amount. And I approved of it then. I still approve of it now. They're the largest producer in terms of revenue to the state. Uh, It would be very injurious if this actually goes down and for those reasons I hope they win.
2: Mm. Uh, it's certainly going to be interesting to watch. Hey, uh, Harry, speaking of uh, of Atlantic City, you know, Kelsey Grammer, one of my uh, favorite celebrities who we've had on the show a bunch of times including promoting his appearances in uh, in Atlantic City. I know he's coming back there this weekend. I'm assuming you've had Kelsey Grammer on, his sh- uh, on your show at some point promoting this uh, Faith American Ale that he's been selling and that he's been serving down there on the Atlantic City boardwalk. Have you?
9: The shocking revelation on the Frank Morano uh, other side of midnight. He knows me. I know him. But you ever have one of those things where it hasn't happened yet? Yeah. It is to happen. He loves Atlantic City. I think you know, and if you don't know, I wrote an article last night about Kelsey coming back this Friday. Uh, He's been here probably six times at least since last October, and he did make a declaration back in May. He said, I love Atlantic City, and he's been hugely, unconditionally, supportive of Atlantic City right. he's a, he is a great man he's a good man I, I'll tell you I always
2: said that the nicest celebrity I ever met was John Travolta. that was until I met uh Kelsey Grammer. He was just in a real treat to spend time with, and if people want to see him, he's going to be in Atlantic City Friday and Saturday. I know he's going to be at Bally's on Saturday. Where's he going to be on Friday? Do you know
9: yeah, I do know uh ten o'clock and it's ten o'clock until there's no end time, and he'll be debuting as you know. I uh, the launch of his Faith American Ale, which has really been doing very, very well uh, everywhere that he's presented it. And by the way, this is perfectly in keeping with Kelsey Grammer. He is he is so well to do for many, many lifetimes. He started that company to create jobs mm. in Pennsylvania uh, where they needed it so desperately. That's why he started the, the company. He's such a good man. Oh, he will be at absolutely. the Ducktown Tavern. Uh, Friday, 10 p.m.
2: All right. Uh, Kelsey Grammer, see him Friday. Ducktown Tavern, see him Saturday at Bally's. Harry, finally, uh, nobody knows Atlantic City better than you. You've been working there and living there for literally decades, been on the radio there for decades. There's a lot of great uh, films that have taken place in Atlantic City. You have, of course, Atlantic City with Susan Sarandon and Burt Lancaster. You have Snake Eyes with Nicolas Cage, a number of others. If you had to pick, if somebody's an Atlantic City fan, whether they visit routinely, whether they live there or whether they've never been what's the best motion picture depicting Atlantic City
9: and by the way so many movies have been made in part in Atlantic City uh for example the newest Halle Berry movie when she's the uh ultimate fighter. oh yeah um, a great film know. we had the producer yeah. Brad
2: Feinstein on this show
9: yeah. so that was in Atlantic City um it's just easy to default because it's so iconic, it's so well done. I love the storyline. I love the plot. You even see things like Lucy the elephant. Uh, you see Resorts Casino Hotel, the first casino in the history of New Jersey. Uh, I'm going to go with Atlantic City, Burt Lancaster, Susan Sarandon.
2: Well, uh, you can't go wrong with that one. Uh, that is certainly a classic, Harry. It's always a treat to uh, to talk with you. I look forward to seeing you at your event in October. Thanks for always being willing to get up a little earlier for us.
9: All the best, Frank.
2: Thank you, Harry Hurley. If you want to comment on any portion of our conversation, you're welcome to give me a call. 800-848-9222. You can frequently hear Harry as a substitute for Brian Kilmeade. Brian Kilmeade will join us next hour uh, to go through some of the news of the day. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead.
1: The Other Side of Midnight. 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 It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano.
7: You call me all friendly, telling me how much you miss me. That's funny, I guess you've heard my songs.
2: This is Dua Lipa, who is very popular these days. Um, And uh, if you ever want to know what kind of bumper music we're playing, join our Facebook group. Uh, Just search on Facebook, Morano Radio Fans and Haters. That's M-O-R-A-N-O, Radio Fans and Haters. You know, there was an interesting article... On CNN.com, and I'm going to link to it on my uh, Facebook page at Facebook dot com slash Morano Fam. It basically it it did take me somewhat by surprise, but not entirely by surprise. And you, I think you know, since the Dobbs decision, w- the where they overturned Roe versus Wade that a lot of states have moved towards restrictions on abortion. Some of them have not, like Kansas. But um, one of – and it's primarily the Republicans that are trying to ban abortions in a lot of these states. But in more than 140 Democrats in state legislatures around the country have participated – in restricting abortion rights. So there's these anti-abortion Democrats in state houses around the country that have partnered with Republicans to restrict abortions. Now, in eight states that CNN looked at, there's these 140 Democrats. Now, in seven of those eight states, these restrictions on abortion would have passed with Republican votes alone. But there's at least one state that they needed those Democratic votes so that's interesting. Give this a read. I think it may surprise you as well. Facebook.com slash Morano fan. Uh, we will talk a little politics with Brian Kilmeade coming up. Your influence counts, so use it.
1: Hi, it's Ernie Anastas. You know, your thoughts can affect how you feel, and how you feel can impact your thoughts. Addressing your mind and body connection is the key to improving your overall wellness. Bergen-Newbridge Medical Center is the largest hospital in New Jersey, providing comprehensive, equitable, compassionate, and high-quality emergency inpatient and outpatient medical care, plus mental health services and substance use disorder treatment. The Bergen-Newbridge team can address your total health needs in one convenient location. Call 201 for an appointment or newbridgehealth.org. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Marano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Marano. Uh.
2: This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Well, what happens if the 2024 election is between Donald Trump and somebody like Bernie Sanders? By the way, happy birthday to Bernie Sanders, Sanders celebrating his birthday today. Happy birthday. What happens if the Republicans nominate someone who is morally unacceptable to millions of Americans, while the Democrats nominate someone who is ideologically unacceptable. Where do the millions of voters in the middle go? Donald Does Trump end up winning as voters refuse to go that far left? Those are the first words and the questions asked in a column uh, by David Brooks of the New York Times just a few days ago. Brooks writes about This group called No Labels. Now, I have been a member of No Labels for over 10 years, and it has never been a political party. What it is is a nonpartisan group that encourages bipartisan cooperation and has bipartisan and nonpartisan solutions on things like debt reduction and things of that nature. You might have heard it. I know John Katsimatidis has spent some time On his show, talking about no labels. I think he's a supporter of no labels as well. He's had uh, different prominent people from no labels like Joe Lieberman and others on his program talking about it. And uh, they're the ones in Congress behind the Problem Solvers Caucus, this group of bipartisan members of Congress where you have to have a Democrat and a Republican to join together in order to become a member. You can't just join if you're a congressman. You have to have somebody of the opposing party to join with you. So, this group, No Labels, which has never been a political party before, they have been working quietly over the past 10 months to give Americans a third viable option. The group calls its work an insurance policy. If one of the parties nominates a candidate acceptable to the center of the electorate, then the presidential operation will shut down. But if both parties go to the extreme, then there will be a unity ticket appealing to both Democrats and Republicans to combat this period of polarized dysfunction. Now, this is interesting because unlike a lot of other third-party efforts, this is very well-funded. This is so far they have secured funding from some very wealthy, very well connected donors to the tune of about 80 million dollars, 80 million dollars. So far, uh, they have allocated 70, uh, excuse me, 46 million dollars or so to um, ballot access operations. So that's really interesting. So they have a four prong approach. One, the first is to gain ballot access for a prospective third-party candidate. We don't know who that candidate will be, but it will be somebody in all 50 states and the District of Columbia. Uh, The second is to create a database on those Americans who would support a unity ticket. The group's research suggests there are 64.5 million voters who would support such an effort, including roughly a third of the people who supported Trump, In 2020 and 20 percent of the Democrats who supported Biden in that year. Third is to find a policy agenda that appeals to these unity voters. I think that's easier said than done. But so far, they've come up with a series of both positions on major issues like comprehensive immigration reform with stronger borders Uh, To American energy self-sufficiency while transitioning to cleaner sources. No guns for anyone under 21 and universal background checks. Moderate abortion policies with abortion legal until about 15 weeks. And the fourth is to create an infrastructure to nominate and support a potential candidate. So um, I think this is really interesting. Because. If there is a Trump-Sanders race in 2024, or even a Trump-Biden race, I think you're going to have a lot of people that would explore the possibility of voting for a centrist candidate. We're going to have um, a somebody, a representative from No Labels, on uh, in about two weeks to talk to me about, to talk to you, really, about their efforts and what they're trying to do and why they're trying to do it. But here's what's interesting. As we go into 2024, at this point, this could certainly change, could change in a day or a week. But I think the most likely Republican candidate is Donald Trump and the most likely Democratic candidate is Joe Biden. There's a lot of people in both parties and a lot of independents that are unhappy with those choices. And there are currently three likely efforts for a centrist third party candidate. You have this no-labels effort, which is not trying to build a political party. It's a one-shot deal. They're just putting this in there in case both parties go too extreme. Then you have the Andrew Yang effort with the forward party, and we don't know what candidate they're going to nominate. I mean, it's not inconceivable that the forward party and the no-labels ballot access effort could nominate the same person. And the third is Brock Pierce, the cryptocurrency billionaire that ran for president briefly four years ago. you some of you might remember him not four years ago, but in two thousand and twenty Some of you might remember him. He did some uh, advertising on this station and was a guest on this show. He was endorsed by Curtis Lewa when he ran for president and it goes to tell it goes to show you a lot about the character of Brock Pierce um, when Curtis ran for mayor and he could have used some money and he could have used some people campaigning for him. Um, Brock Pierce was nowhere to be found. So Curtis was the only major political figure to back Brock Pierce, and then Brock Pierce couldn't endorse and raise money for Eric Adams fast enough. I, I, I really that totally soured me on Brock Pierce. I um I really it made me think less of him. Uh, the fact that he would take allow Curtis to go on such a limb for him, and then when Curtis. Need Even if you have to give money to both candidates, I know a lot of people do that, especially the wealthy people. Give give money to both. Raise some money to both. The guy did not give Curtis a dime and certainly didn't give him a public endorsement. I thought that was very disappointing. But anyway, so you're going to have three centrist candidates in 2024, possibly. Or at least there's three efforts moving towards that. Brock Pierce the forward party candidate, and the no-labels party candidate. 800 848 if you want to comment, and I'll give you my take. But first, this is Nancy Jacobson on a podcast called Keen On. And she Nancy Jacobson is the co-founder and one of the leaders of No Labels. She's who I've been in touch with about scheduling a no-labels person on the show, and I believe she's been on with John Katsimatidis before. And this is her talking about the problem – with the
0: Democrats
2: and the Republicans,
11: do you think things are worse on the right than they are on the left?
0: It's interesting. Uh, I do think it's. I think it's both sides, right? Um, you know, I think that when you think of the right, you think of the, you know, Trump, who really controls the Demo- the uh, Republican primary voters. You know, he is uh, he bullies uh, members of his party to. You know, we saw it recently uh, in this past Congress, the infrastructure vote vote or, you know, uh, you know, he voted to impeach. You know, he looks to take out. I mean, we've never seen a former sitting president act in that manner. Typically, people go off uh, to greener pastures and focus on libraries, but we're not seeing that. But, you know, I have to say, I think the left of the Democratic Party, I, I do believe the left, AOC, Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren controls the Democratic Party. I don't think there's any center left there either. And they play for keeps just as well.
2: Ryan Clancy was on that same podcast talking about what No Labels is trying to do.
16: Uh, A lot of what we do is just trying to bring people together. Uh, When we started this, we we were just shocked at the total absence of relationships on Capitol Hill. I mean, I, I am not exaggerating when I tell you that these people didn't know each other. They didn't talk to each other. They, they would tell us, look, the first week they come in for new member orientations, it's like a middle school dance, like, a, you know, green red shirts on one side, blue shirts on the other. They even had Republican buses and Democratic buses to go to, to separate events. So everything in Washington, uh, all the interest groups are pushing them apart. We're one of the few that are actually trying to bring them together.
2: Now, the group has not figured out how their nominating process would work, though they told David Brooks that they want to use technology to create a transparent process that would generate public interest. Picture a giant Internet primary. That's what it sounds like to me. There would be a nominating convention in Texas shortly after it becomes clear who will be the Democratic and Republican nominees. But again, the people who are volunteering for this effort, They're emphasizing they're not leaving their parties. This is not an effort to create a third party like what Andrew Yang's trying to do. This is a one-off move to create a third option if the two major parties abandon the middle in 2024. Ryan Clancy, who's with No Labels, talked about some of the existing divisions going on in the country right now.
11: We've done a number of shows on the dysfunctionality of American politics, on, on gerrymandering. We did a show about how these divisions now... Are compounded not just at the federal level but at the local level why why have has this dichotomy emerged ryan between the left and right in america what is the core reason was it always the case uh,
16: no. I mean, as Nancy mentioned at, at the top of the show, uh, most of the big changes in the country, you talk about the Civil Rights Act, the uh, creation of Social Security, balancing budget in, in, the, in the 90s, it was both parties at the table. There's a lot of reasons it's got this dysfunctional. You can blame traditional media. You, you can blame social media. Um, but I will say that, that a lot of the changes people reach for, and gerrymandering is a great example, there's, there's less than meets the eye there. Uh, in terms of of what it would do, uh, you know, if you, if you look at why we're so divided, a lot of it isn't the district lines. Uh, you know, it's it's self-sorting. It's Democrats want to live with Democrats. It's Republicans want to live with Republicans. Like, look, I, I'm here in Brooklyn. Doesn't
2: matter how you draw the lines. There's always going to be a Democrat coming out of here. So, um, I think this is interesting, and I'm curious. If you are somebody that's in the middle that's turned off by say the by say a Trump Biden matchup or a Trump Sanders matchup or a Trump Elizabeth Warren matchup if you would consider one of the three centrist alternatives that I just alluded to 800-848-9222 that's 800-848-9222 I'll tell you where I'm coming from. Now, I have never been a Republican. I've never been a Democrat. I usually go third party. I did vote for Donald Trump twice happily, um, but uh, I I am not. I am someone that is not being well served by the Democrats and Republicans. And I'd like to vote for a third party or independent candidate in 2024, especially if it's a serious third party or independent candidate in 2024. And I would have a tough time voting for either Biden or Trump in 2024. We can put that uh, aside for a separate discussion uh, as we get closer to it. But the kind of third party candidate that I'd like to vote for is somebody like Ross Perot, somebody like Pat Buchanan, somebody like Ralph Nader, a populist outsider who appeals to both the left and the right, but could also appeal to the center. That was what was so great about Perot. Perot, and it was so great about Trump in 2016, Perot and then Trump, they, and Nader, had no problem taking all these sacred cows that the media and the establishment in both parties just loved. Free trade, reckless immigration, uh, never-ending foreign wars, And he slayed them. Perot and uh, Trump and Nader, they ran on very much a a platform that could appeal to the left and the right. And my fear is that these three third-party options that I just mentioned, and I'm going to talk to Ryan Clancy about this when he's on the show, and if Andrew Yang comes on the show, I'll talk to him. I'll even talk to Brock Pierce after I finish berating him for stabbing Curtis Lewa in the back. But um, I don't know that, There's somebody running. I don't know that there's a third party option for those of us that want a populist outsider, some that want a Trumpian, Perot-esque, Naderite, Buchanan-esque candidate. And that's the candidate that I'm still waiting to emerge. And I think we know why that's the case. It's tough. And maybe this will be the no labels candidate. Right. But I think it's tough to secure $74 million in funding to somebody that says, I don't want free trade, I don't want to give Ukraine a blank check to continue this war with Russia forever, and I don't want um, unfettered immigration. And uh, that's what I'm waiting for. But I'm curious how you think this is going to play out. 800-848-9222, that's one eight hundred eight four eight nine two. Two two. Brian Kilmeade coming up at about ten minutes. Thousand dollar minute coming up at about ten minutes. Let me say hello first to uh, Charles in Queens. Hello, Charles.
4: Yeah. Hi. Hi. Good hi, morning. Hi, hi. Good morning. Um, I was. I apologize. I forgot the name of the guest that you had on before four o'clock. The uh, talk show host in the Harry TV. Harry Hurley. Yes, Harry Hurley. Harry Hurley. Right. Okay. I had never heard of him. Doesn't mean anything. There's a million important people I'd never heard of. Uh, well, if you've sounded, never heard of him, now, Charles,
2: he's done. He's. I'm not booking him as a guest on the show anymore. I'm not listening I'm to him. Glad anymore. you
4: said it instead of me. Anyways, <laughs> um, so so he did. He was very. Uh, he sounded very knowledgeable, very informative, and so on and so forth. There's only one part that I didn't like. It just really rubbed me the wrong way. I never heard anybody else do that. He mentioned three or four different. Um, uh, Scenarios, possible scenarios, if X would have run at that particular point in time, so and so would have won. Is he a prophet? And everything, you can say, I feel he would have won most probably. There's so many factors coming to play. and Any candidate makes a real big blooper, a real screw up, and it's over. There's so many factors that coming to play. He's not a prophet. How could he say, with certainty? Well, that's true. He's that's
12: true. Arrogant, yeah, I uh, well, would have won. Mean...
2: I'm not going to go so far as to say it was arrogant, but you know that's what he believes. I, I was not going to go and question every possible hypothetical, but you know you just never know. You never know. Uh, but I don't. I don't necessarily think it was a, a, arrogant. I just think he—that's his opinion. Right. 800-848-9222. Ernie is in Westchester. Hello, Ernie. Hey, uh, Frank. Uh, very quickly, going
8: back. Isn't uh yogurt and cream cheese and all that stuff spoiled milk
2: oh well i mean i don't think it's technically spoiled milk but i get what you're trying to say
8: well that's you know like yogurt sour cream um uh, all that stuff comes from from milk that's spoiled and i guess they put probiotics in it and that's
5: what I thought it was. Anyway,
9: well, I, mean, I don't want to
2: waste time. Yeah, yet. yogurt is made from fresh milk, and then they add a culture of a particular yogurt-making bacteria. And that bacteria, that culture, when it's added to the yogurt, that's when yogurt does its magic and becomes what we enjoy. I'm less familiar with, um, uh, with, with uh, cream cheese, you mentioned. I, I don't think it's spoiled milk, though.
10: Um,
8: because all those things of those, those ancillary offshoots of milk or dairy. Once, once the milk is done, and whatever they make out of the milk, or, or the yogurt, or whatever,
2: I never see it go bad. <laughs> well, that's hey uh, one more reason to keep it out of the refrigerator, Ernie. Thank you. Eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two. Mark is in Rochelle Park. Hello, Mark.
10: Hey Frank, how you doing this morning? Great. Quick, Thanks for a, asking. I was one of the guys, I was one of those guys that voted for Ross Perot, which by voting for per, per, Perot, we got Bill Clinton well, first uh, of all, Mark, all Mark, um
2: uh I don't I I'm i do not believe that's true. Um if you email me, I'm going to show you a uh, a great right. documentary uh that I, I love it, sure. Yeah, that that I, and it's you know, I'm going to link to it as well on my Facebook page. It's from okay, it's great. it's made by ESPN. Uh, but it's really well done. And if you okay. if you look at the data, and I'll just say this to people because this is a common myth. Uh, if you yeah. look at oh. the data, there's no point in which – because Ross Perot dropped out of the race. And um, even when Perot was not in the race, there's no point in that election where Bush was polling ahead of Bill Clinton. So um, you, you could argue, and there's no way to know this for sure or not – but you could argue that by Perot being in those debates, that it altered the dynamics of the race, and and uh, because you had Bush, you had uh, Bush getting ganged up on by Clinton and Perot, you could argue that. And there's no way to prove or disprove that. What you can't say based on the data is that if um the is that uh, Perot was siphoning off voters that would have voted for Bush, because it shows that Perot. Well exit polls show that Perot drew from three groups. He drew from people that were going to vote for Bush, people that were going to vote for Clinton, and the largest group of Perot voters are people that would have stayed home. They wouldn't have voted for anybody.
10: Um, uh, I, I'm, I'm anecdotal evidence. He's siphoned me off Bush, but I will take a look at that. I don't really like, you know, I, I, I like going back to see if I'm wrong, but I will look at that. Another real quick, if, if who decides how far left, or how far right that candidate is? That's going to be a problem as well. And my last point—I'll let you go to comment on it—is once they get power, Frank, they're not going to give it up. So if this, you know, middle of the road get together, they're not. It's not going to be a one-off. That's all I got to say. Have a great day. Well, Frank.
2: thank you. Yeah, I, you know, your point there is a good one, Mark. Um, you know, you someone might think that Elizabeth Warren is super left-wing. Someone else might think. She's mainstream. Someone might think Donald Trump is super right wing. Someone else might think Trump is mainstream. So that's right. I mean, who gets to make the decision for no labels in terms of whether they pull the trigger on this plan or not? That's a great point. And that's something. And I'm going to ask Ryan Clancy that when he's on this show. That's something that no one has given an answer for. Uh, That's why we have such smart listeners. Peter is on Staten Island. Hello, Peter. Hi, Frank. I got to ask you a question. Go ahead. You know, you know more about
6: politics than anybody that I know. Seriously. Now, if Trump was to run and DeSantis together, would there be that possibility? Because I feel that would be an absolute slaughter. And then the other question I want to ask you is, you know, guys talking in the, you know, uh, Burger King and everything, you know, that's for the barbershop. They say this point. I want to know if you believe it so. Uh, The last election with Donald Trump, if you didn't vote, the electoral votes went to the Democrats, okay? Now, I vote for one simple reason. It's because men fought for our right to vote, and that's an important thing. And men are maimed from the wars, and men are killed and everything. Freedom isn't free, so that's why I vote. But is it true that with the electoral vote, if you wanted Trump and you didn't vote for Trump, you helped Trump. Okay. I, I hope you're following what I'm saying. I'm
2: not following. Debated. I'm not I'm not following yeah, this Peter. Is,
6: this has been debated, they say, because of the uh popularity vote and the electoral vote, that even though New York if people voted for Trump, he actually the votes went to uh the Democrat. And uh, you know, that's what I'm, that's what I'm trying to get well, enforced by the popular vote. Yeah, well the only no. president ever won the popular vote was John F. Kennedy that I know.
2: No, no, no. What, what do you mean, the only president that won the popular vote? Po- presidents no, have won I mean
6: won the popular and won the electoral, too.
2: No, well, I mean, you had um, George Bush in 2004 won the popular vote and won the electoral vote. Barack Obama okay. in 08 and 2012 won the uh, electoral vote and won the popular vote. The only Republican to win the uh, popular vote and the electoral vote since 1988— was uh was um the uh, candidate i just mentioned George W Bush but Reagan not only won the popular vote he won 49 states in the electoral vote but, right, yeah right. but but Peter but, uh, John F Kennedy was the first one right no 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 he, he there have been candidates winning the popular vote and the electoral vote going back to the 1800s it doesn't okay, it,
6: it doesn't like always happen that that's way that's what
2: i no this is just what You know, talk around the
6: table. And I I says, if I call Frank, Frank will know the facts. Yeah. now I know. And when I get by the table, I'm going to tell
2: them that. Yeah, no, no, no. Call me up next time you're at the table with them. Thank you. Brian Kilmeade joining me in a minute. Hey, if you want to start queuing up, uh, be the seventh caller right now to 800-848-9222. And if you're the seventh caller, we're going to give you an opportunity to answer 10 trivia questions in 60 seconds. But first, let me say hello to Pamela in New Jersey. She's been patiently holding. Hello, Pamela.
15: Hello. Um, you know, a third party always tilts the apple cart, whether you go out to dinner and you're trying to decide what restaurant to go to. And it's always, you know, and in this case, it's going to benefit the left. And uh, again, like you said, um, uh, some of us don't think that Trump is right, right. And and anyway, we, we need somebody right to, uh, uh, even if you call him that, to uh, bring us back to balance. And it's very dangerous coming up with a third party right now. Ranked choice voting in Alaska, a different form of it than what you talked about, screwed up the voting up there. And um, uh, that's my opinion. And um, so we need a strong two sides. And the other side is very strong. So uh, a third party at this point, these, uh, you know, it's nice, La La la, Land, in theory, these groups saying, oh, well, I don't like this. And I don't like that about them. And I don't like this but it always screws up the pot. You add ice to vodka, it's no longer pure vodka.
2: <laughs> well, that's true. I appreciate the drinking analogy, Pamela. Thank you. You know, it, it, there's a, de- a lot of ways to view this. My view is, uh, it, Pamela, I think, said two contradictory things. And, and again, we've got to get to Brian Kilmeade, so I'm not going to do this now. But um, if the idea that a third-party candidate running distorts the actual winner, if that's accurate then the solution to that is ranked choice voting. Because let's say that caller that called a few minutes ago who voted for Bush, who voted for Perot, but if Perot wasn't running, he would have voted for Bush. If he had ranked choice voting in his state, he could have ranked Perot first and Bush second. And then when Perot finished third, all those Perot votes would have transferred to Bush. So that would have prevented Bill Clinton. But, you know, it all depends on your perspective. My friend Vinny, who's a Republican, and is hoping that, you know, Trump wins in 2024. He wrote me this uh, when about the Andrew Yang-Christy Whitman forward party. This is what he wrote me. He says, I love this. Yang appeals to the youth Democratic vote and Whitman appeals to no one. So whomever they will endorse will come out of Biden's hide, Trump 2024. That's what he said. Now, meanwhile, the no labels folks are quoted in this um, article in the New York Times They have identified 23 states where they believe a unity ticket could win a plurality of the vote, including Pennsylvania, Virginia, North Carolina, Texas, Minnesota, Colorado. And if that ticket gained a plurality in those 23 states, then there's a pathway to victory. But uh, if they had ranked choice voting in those states, you couldn't win with a plurality. You'd need a majority. So there's that. All right. $1,000 Minute and Brian Kilmeade straight ahead.
1: The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Frank Morano.
2: This is The Other Side of Midnight. We have uh, Brian Kilmeade waiting in the wings. Uh, But before that, we're going to try and give away some money. Uh, This is a very exciting, very exciting portion of our program. It is time for...
1: The Other Side of Midnight presents... It's the Thousand Dollar Minute. Answer 10 questions correctly in one minute, and you could win $1,000. Here's your host, Frank
2: Murano. Thank you, Chris Libertini. Great to see you at that party uh, last night. And uh, it's no wonder, since you were quoted so liberally in the New York Post, that you were being so nice to Alex Mitchell. Those of us like Brian Kilmeade and myself, who were not quoted in that New York Post article... We had no reason to be that nice to Alex Mitchell. But uh, let us say hello to Tom on Long Island. Hello, Tom.
12: Hey, Frank. How are you?
2: I'm great, Tom. Thanks for listening. Thanks for wanting to play the game.
12: Yep. I'm looking forward to it, and uh, I
2: know the rules, and I'm ready to go. Let's do it. All right. How many vowels are there? Seven. Who is the current majority leader of the U.S. Senate? Uh, Mitch McConnell. Uh, no, I'm sorry, Tom. It's it's Chuck Schumer. Chuck Schumer is the majority leader. Um, yeah, the uh, if the Republicans win the Senate, it probably will end up being Mitch McConnell. Tom, uh, I'm going to put you on hold. I'm sorry you didn't win. But uh, we're going to give you a consolation prize. Uh, That's a question that even Brian Kilmeade would have uh, gotten right. Brian Kilmeade, of course, is a a New York Times bestselling author, co-host of Fox & Friends, and the host of one of the most listened to nationally syndicated radio shows in the country, including being heard uh, from 10 a.m. to noon on WABC each weekday. And somebody who... I guarantee he didn't sleep at all yesterday because he was out partying at the WABC gala last night, and here he is (laughs) in the wee hours of the morning beating the sun uh, to uh, waking up, as he always does.
14: Brian, it was great to see you last night. Hey, uh, great to see you, Frank. Great uh, introduction to Curtis Liu. I guess he went to the Hall of Fame. Uh, yeah, he got uh, – it was a very odd award,
2: 28 years of service. As I said, that's the kind of award that they threw at him so that he wouldn't complain. Uh, that He didn't get anything. But uh, Curtis is a Hall of Famer in my book as far as I'm concerned.
14: Yeah, I mean it was an unbelievable uh, – it was unbelievable night. I've never seen uh, more important New Yorkers in one place, and, no, uh, bar none. Neither I mean, I. maybe I. Maybe the last time I was there was Tom Coughlin had a big fundraiser. Uh, When he was still, I guess, consulting with the Giants. And I mean, I remember thinking to myself, this place is packed with, you know, everybody. But you had what, uh, two, three, three police commissioners there. You had Pat Ryder. You had Commissioner Kelly. Um, Half of safer. the Trump
2: cabinet was there. Yeah. Yeah. Larry Kudlow, Steve Moore. I mean, it was uh, it was a star-studded room, if uh, if ever there was one. But if you look at just the people on our station, yourself included, I mean, uh, this is a, a who's who of uh, of media and politics, and uh, only John Matitis can put together a room like that.
14: Oh uh, yeah, it was just a great night. I mean, it was uh, it was unbelievable, and to think that maybe five years ago you couldn't even you probably wouldn't be fill up a cafeteria and now uh, seventy seven w a b c is uh packing the place with people who wanted to be there, wanted to celebrate, and others who were afraid to miss. Oh, no doubt you know, about other it. Other people, politicians, you do not want to miss that event if you're invited. No, no doubt about it. Uh, uh,
7: let me
2: get your take on where we are with this Trump investigation. A big legal victory for the Trump team uh, with this judge who, as you have probably heard described in a lot of the anti-Trump media, is a Trump-appointed judge. But the federal judge in this case um, has decided to grant the trump request for a special master i was a little surprised at how controversial her decision was what was your take on her her decision and
14: where do you think this goes from here a couple of things i mean you probably were flipping around channels which i think you should do uh when you host your show because you know for me for the most part you know i saw the the judge that ruled it go ahead raid uh sign this warrant go in there best of luck Uh, And they said, what's this judge's background? Well, he recused himself because he had donated to Hillary Clinton uh, and he's been a Barack Obama uh, donor. But in this case, he says, it's okay. Have one, uh, have all and go into the Mar-a-Lago. And that's what made people suspicious. At the same time, people were saying, "Well, this is a, ju- a Trump-appointed judge." She said the president, the former president, still had some ad- executive privilege, which is interesting. And then she said, uh, "I really find that they over—this is too broad, and they took too much stuff. We need a third person. Give me some suggestions of a possible special master. Let's go in." And now this judge is terrible. Doesn't know what she's doing. There's so many things wrong with her decision. It's going to be appealed. Well, tomorrow's a deadline. I don't know if they're going to appeal it, but uh, time's running out. So get the special master. If you're so confident that you took the right stuff for the right reason, have a special master come in and confirm how great uh, the FBI was in their uh, pillaging the place and the <laughs> DOJ was in coming up with that decision. So I, I'm looking forward to maybe the president, the former president getting his stuff back, like his medical records and his tax returns, as well as he's already gotten his passport back. And I don't know if they took the report card of Barron. <laughs> uh, from his from his uh, bedroom. But let's be honest, the, president called, the former president caused problems for himself. Why would he take all this stuff? If I'm the former president, if I wanted to come back there in four years, I'd say, hey, have someone screen this. Make sure I like to take this stuff back. I like to, be, for whatever reason, make a library or some memorabilia. Just make sure I can do it. Uh, and if there was a problem with it, the president could have just uh, uh, approached it in a more organized fashion. But we have not got his side of the story yet. All we get is leaks to The Washington Post and The New York Times and some Trump social uh, uh, tweets or posts, whatever they call it. I'm curious to see the present side of the story. Did he feel as though they were negotiating the up and up? Did he think that they were going back and forth? What was his reason for grabbing some of this stuff? Um, why were the folders empty? We just didn't get his side of the story yet.
2: Well, no, that's certainly true. And I'll be interested in hearing what the rationale is for having some of these uh, having some of these documents. You talk about um, the coverage of this investigation on other channels and certainly been very different in terms of tone and in terms of substance. But somebody who has uh, been a pretty consistent critic of President Trump here has been his own former attorney general, Bill Barr. He was also George H.W. Bush's attorney general, and he was on Fox News this week talking about this decision on a special master. This is what Bill Barr said. But I think
3: at the end of the day, there's another question is, do you indict a former president? What will that do to the country? What kind of precedent will that set? Mm-hmm. Will the people really understand that this is not you know, failing to return a library book, that this was serious? And so you have to worry about those things. And I hope that those kinds of factors will incline the administration not to indict him, because I don't want to see him indicted mm-hmm. as a former president.
2: Um, He also has been pretty critical of uh, various other aspects of the Trump legal strategy. Do you think this is sour grapes from Trump criticizing him? Do you think this is Bill Barr just being intellectually honest? What do you make of the Barr criticism of Trump throughout this process?
14: Um, Well, I mean, I read most of his book, and he was complimentary towards Trump, towards a lot of it. But other times he wasn't, like, towards the end when Trump... Trump tried I uh, screamed at him and said, uh, you're basically fired. Uh, and then they walked him back and they said, can you at least give us a few more weeks? They tried to have cooler heads prevail. But no doubt about it, uh, Trump beating up on him on a regular basis did not uh, breed loyalty. I thought that Bill Barr, and we've been over this, Frank, I thought he was one of the administration's MVPs. Mm. What he did with the Mueller report came in and created some order, some uh, protection for the administration. As the almost every media outlet and uh, every Democrat, uh, especially in the House, now that they were in the majority in the second two years, well, were just feasting on the president. This guy pushed back with a fearlessness and a, a thick skin I've never seen before. And then the president just said, "Hey, you don't back my election complaints. Uh, you're fired. You're embarrassing me." And he said, "Okay, I'll quit." So it did create some angst. But what he said at the end is absolutely true. It's basically what Lindsey Graham said. I don't care if you whatever you think of Trump, uh, you got about 70 million people. Oh, let's say 50 million still uh, firmly in his in his, uh corner. And if you go ahead there, rate his place, take his stuff and then say you're indicted and you think there's not going to be a bitter division that could could uh, uh, morph into violence. You have your head in the sand. Mm. And Lindsey Graham got ripped for that, but he was just being honest. He wasn't calling for it. He was citing it. Isn't that pretty much what, what Barr is saying? Uh, people will not understand that uh, this stuff may or may not have fallen into the category of uh, top secret documents in, in the wrong hands. And therefore, um, we should, you should be indicted. People aren't going to understand that because of the bad track record the FBI has with the president. I mean, are you seeing you following some of this Hunter Biden things as we begin to unwind how that story was suppressed? I mean, you got hardcore, not opinion, uh, facts that show one disgraced FBI agent uh, and the 12 whistleblowers inside the FBI who have gone to Johnson and Grassley and said there's a huge problem of bias against Trump that led to the freezing of the New York Post account and the uh, and the and the salting away of the Hunter Biden story as it relates to President Biden, then candidate. I mean, this is fact. So you read that, you go about your job, you drive a truck, you're a CEO of a major corporation, whatever you do for a living. And then you, you go, wait a second, they raided his house? The FBI did? Because of what? They were already in negotiations? Really? Because they took some – have they ever done, have they never done that before? Was he there? Did they inform him? No. What else did they take? Well, they took all his personal items, took his taxes, health forms, uh, and, and they took his uh, passport. Well, people are just going to see that. They don't do this every day and say, this is unbelievable. We're targeting our enemies now. Well, where
2: do you see the Hunter Biden investigation going? Apparently, that's still being investigated. You think he gets away with a slap on the wrist? Or do you think there's going to be something a little more serious?
14: I don't know. I mean, I couldn't believe the revelations and the and the, and the editor of the New York Post was there yesterday and a John Levine, who's doing an incredible job with the Post, and Miranda Devine. I mean, when, if you read their columns, and I really encourage you to do that, especially if you're somebody that hasn't been following, just read it. These aren't opinions. This isn't Hunter Biden's bad guy and Joe Biden's involved. No, these are facts and emails in collaboration with Tony Bobolinsky who has got the top secret clearance, was a, a, a decorated officer in the military, uh, a self-made multimillionaire who was called in to organize their international business dealings, who turned over all of his electronic equipment, surveillance and communication to the FBI after five hours of testimony and they took it and buried it. And the FBI agent that the whistleblowers came forward and said, This guy's buried the story, was the point person for Tony Bobolinsky that could have confirmed everything in the laptop because Bobolinsky had nothing to do with the laptop. But his communication was on there and was corroborated with his phone. So when everyone says, Well, this laptop's fake, no, it isn't. Tony Bobolinsky had the other copies on his phone and he provided for it uh, with, with, to the Senate and to the FBI, and they buried the story. Think about that. It's not bearing a story. It's not a smear. It's not an affair. It is how a future president was dealing with Kazakhstan, Romania, Mm. and most of all, China and Ukraine. So why would you think his foreign policy wouldn't be affected, especially if his family could be indicted? You don't think that's playing a role I don't know. Almost everything? Donald, uh, Joe Biden has done has hurt our national security since then, including telling everyone no more oil and gas. Let's go, go to go with Chinese batteries. They have all the raw <laughs> material. Well, um,
2: Brian, on to m- more trivial matters for some and more significant matters for others. NFL uh, this week. Oh, the Giants, the Jets. Do you see any reason to be optimistic if you're a New York football fan this year?
14: Well, I mean, I hear great things about the Giants' coaching staff. I really do. I think they have a, a great culture. I think Saquon has got uh, a few more quality offensive linemen in front of him, and I think he's healthy, determined. He's playing in a contract year. Uh, Daniel Jones also in a contract year. Uh, I like that guy. Wanted to be successful. He, you know, his, basically his offense is him running with the ball, uh, which gets him hurt, which makes you wonder who the backup quarterback is, and they got a good one this year. So I think they're lucky to be five hundred. I'm intrigued by the Jets. I think they got a lot of talent. I've always liked that coach. He's, he's one of these players' coaches. I, I think they have a lot more talent than people think. I just love to see the Jets be competitive um, and the Giants to get on their way. I like to see an innovative offense for a change. I think we'll start to see some changes maybe by week five. But for the most part, I cannot wait for the Rams Bills. It's going to be fantastic tonight. Um, so Who are you, you picking?
2: Who are you picking in that? Uh, the Bills. Game? Bills, yeah. Uh,
14: no question. W- uh, irrespective of the point spread. Uh, B- Bills flat out to win. Um, uh, I, I just think that the Bills of this team, uh, I, that they're the next up. Um, uh, and I, I just think the, the Bills are ready. Uh, right coaches, right quarterback, certainly, and that team is united around them. So I you know, I am intrigued by by a lot of things. So many quarterbacks now change teams later mm. from Russell Wilson on down to Carson Wentz who's gonna be uh with the Redskins who I only wish the worst for. Uh <laughs> and yeah, and you know, you I think it's gonna be um uh I think it's gonna be an interesting season. I've never seen more people talk generically about their thirst for football yeah. than this year. Yeah, everyone likes Giants Jets. I get it. Walking the streets of New York, Giants Jet fans, happy, unhappy, whatever. But I just hear people go. I just want to watch it again. You know, I I want to get. I want. It's been too long. I can't wait to get them out there.
2: Yeah, the um, Bills are favored by uh, two, only two and a half, so uh, the odds makers have this as a pretty competitive game uh, tonight, so that's going to be interesting to watch. Uh, speaking of sports, uh, very few people know the world of sports better than Sid Rosenberg. You just have to ask him, and uh, I noticed you did a very, uh, very, very tough, hard-hitting interview with Sid Rosenberg talking about his new book. Now, uh, what is the greatest challenge in interviewing someone
14: like Sid Rosenberg? Um, his charisma, getting over the charisma and just getting to the questions. I mean, he just radiates presence. Uh, I would think that his talent it oozes out and sometimes it can overwhelm you. And they will end up going to a monologue and you won't interrupt him with a follow-up question. Um, no, he, he comes to play. He, his book is, uh, the book is direct. It's right to the point. Um, it's self-deprecating at times. It's to the point. He, it's also short, which I like because I don't have a lot of time to get through. Right. Yeah, I mean, you'll read it. You'll read it in a day. But by the way, Sid's book all over the place last night.
2: Oh, no, absolutely. Yeah, no. And a great response from people uh, who've read it. And I've read it. And it's, I find it very entertaining. So it's, uh, it's certainly Do you think
14: there should have been more about you,
2: Frank? Yeah, you know, I, I think you and I are on the same page in the book, which is page 28, which uh, basically there's the, the sum and to, the sum total of what's on there is, oh, it's great to be on such a great station with Brian Kilmeade, Dominic Carter, Frank Morano, yeah. Lydia Saranai <laughs> and Curtis Lewa. So it was great to be listed with you, Brian. It's you an That it was, it
14: was, it was like the editor probably said, hey, it's, it's 500 pages, <laughs> but shorten the Frank and <laughs> Brian section. I mean, he could have put another line in there. Uh, Just like, And by the way, when it comes to Frank, to see his smiling face every day when I walk into work... Exactly, right. It it wouldn't have hurt. Exactly. Hey, uh, what
2: can we look forward to on Fox & Friends this morning and then a little later on radio?
14: A little bit later on uh, radio. Well, first off, I'm going to be talking about those new polls in Florida that has DeSantis up by single digits uh, by about only four points and Rubio up by two. I thought Rubio's close. I'm stunned. Uh, I am stunned to see it so close with DeSantis. Uh, that that blows me away, uh, to be honest, and I'm going to be uh, talking about the front page of the New York Post and, and the crime and as it relates to what's happening in Memphis. You got this uh this machete wielding lunatic mm. who was just in jail for wielding a machete out again hits an 82-year-old in the head almost kills him and this woman should have been locked up a long time ago in Memphis this 19-year-old shoots four people last night turns out that guy should have been locked up too and then of course the uh, the woman who was kidnapped in Memphis uh uh and killed running at four uh, at five in the morning to try to get a quick run in before uh, she goes and gets her kids off to school this is what it is it's crime and no punishment and new york is emblematic of it and memphis is also showed you as widespread it is i was actually just there and i asked uh, i asked uh, the former sheriff just casually who was friends with elvis i'm doing an elvis special i go what's memphis like what are you guys what's the main thing he's like brian it's crime we can't go anywhere i go wait You got a crime problem in Memphis? Sure enough, these two big stories here, and we're looking at it uh, in New York. Uh, Steve Moore is going to be on in-studio. Senator Ron Johnson, uh, he's trailing by about three points in his race to a wild leftist. I can't believe Wisconsin wants that. Mark Teeson will talk about the same investigation you're talking about, we were just talking about together, uh, as well as uh, Dr. Oz uh, finally got his wish, and that's to um, debate debate Fetterman, who's basically— Bernie Sanders in a hoodie, and then Carly Shimkus, who actually worked with Imus, was on ABC for years. Uh, she'll be in studio, and we'll be talking about that. All right,
2: you are loaded for bear, and then uh, people are not going to want to miss One Nation with Brian Kilmeade on uh, on Fox News on uh, on Saturday. Do you know what you're doing on uh, on One Nation at this point?
14: Yeah, Uh, Mercedes Colvin's going to bring us inside the Republican Party. Word is that DeSantis going to is got a team together. He's going to probably announce in January. Other people are saying look out for Pompeo, maybe in Iowa. Uh, He's got a team in Iowa. Would he run if Trump runs? We'll go inside that. Um, We're also going to uh, we're going to talk to David Limbaugh about the passing of his brother. Also, he's got a brand uh, brand new book out. So, uh, those are two things I could tell you for sure, but uh, we'll be ready to go by Saturday.
2: Great. Well, Brian, it is always a treat to speak with you, and it was a real treat to see you yesterday. Go get a prank. Absolutely. Thank you. If you want to comment on anything we're talking about for 15 seconds or less, you can do so. 800 That's 1 800 Straight ahead.
1: The other side of midnight.
9: midnight.
2: When the sun goes down, you might need a place to call your own. Somewhere out there on the other side of me, you might hear a voice of breeze in
5: the grind. Somewhere,
2: thank you, you, Stevie G the and the Tamagotchi Band. Uh, They are just terrific. You can get the song on iTunes. You know, I am getting killed via email and on Facebook because I, we accepted a wrong answer on the $1,000 minute 20 minutes ago. First question was how many vowels are there? And the contestant said seven. And in actuality, there are only six if you include Y. You know what? I do think that was probably too tough a question for a first question. Question uh, too tough a question for a first response. So I don't know. Maybe we should have kept that a little farther down. I don't even listen usually to the first question. I, I just assume they're gonna get it right. So uh that so well he got the second one wrong anyway. So we'll we'll try it again tomorrow. All right. Uh 800-848-9222 Ask Frank anything tomorrow. Come armed with some good questions. You can maybe earn yourself a prize. In the meantime, it's time for
1: the other side of midnight. This
2: is fifteen seconds of fame. Randy in East Meadow.
10: Yes, I'd like to know how come reporters don't ask the New York gun laws what gun, what crimes were committed with licensed weapons.
6: Rick in Tom's River. Yes, good morning. With the butter, go with Lake butter with sea salt and olive oil. David
2: in the Bronx.
9: If you're serious about a third-party candidate, we
2: need to get rid of the Electoral College. Thank you. Mike in New Jersey.
6: Good morning, Frank. Frank, Phil Murphy's new look hairstyle certainly says
10: political
9: and presidential aspirations. I'm sure he's a fine fellow, but heaven help us. Neil in Staten Island. For 10 years, I've been saying you're the hardest
6: working man in America. I'm wrong. It's Brian Kilby. I think you're right, Neil.
2: You are right. Hey, I'll be back tomorrow. You want to stay in touch? You can find me on Twitter, at Frank Moreno. Frank Moreno, good day.